Welcome to episode 35 of Chin Music. It's a podcast. It's presented by Fangraphs in sunny and cool DeKalb, Illinois. I always look out my window before I say that, as if I don't know what the weather is. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me in the co-host chair this week, making a return engagement. He is... I, I forgot his title already. What's your title? Say your title for me. I'm like con- consulting editor, kind of like Sherlock Holmes was a consulting detective. What what that means is don't speak unless spoken to, but when you are spoken to, have something valuable to say. He's the consulting detective at Baseball Prospectus <laughs> and from New Jersey and a, a longtime friend and, and one of, the, one of the, the, the nicest people you'll ever meet. It's Stephen Golden. Stephen, how are you? I'm good. When, when you said that the podcast was brought to you by Fangraphs in, in, in my mind, I filled in glorious Technicolor, <laughs> breathtaking Cinemascope. Panavision. <laughs> exactly. For your widescreen listening. It's so good to be back. How are, how are you, actually? I'm tired. Um, <laughs> we got a puppy uh, yeah. over the weekend. You know, it's just, let's, let's just go to the shelter and look at animals. It'll be fun. We're not going to get anything. Um, and, and now we have, um, a, a, a two month old puppy. His name is president Pierce. Nice. Um, he is, uh, his mother was a Jack Russell terrier. We have no idea, uh, who did the dirty deed with his mother. Um, but he's definitely going to be a small guy. It's not like a great Dane did it, did it or something. Uh, it's, he's a little good dude. Um, and if you ever saw the, the ballad of Buster Scruggs, the, yes. the Coen brothers movie, um, in the scene, uh, the gal got rattled in that segment. Um, they have a little shitty Jack Russell Terrier named President Pierce. Um, and thus the name is there. That's a lot of weight for a dog to carry, given how bad a President Pierce was. He had a tragic life. But like, it's, it's also a shitty name for a dog. Cause you want like that quick name. So we're just calling him Frankie. Like, and <laughs> So we call him Frankie. And then and when he's like a shithead, which is pretty much any time he's awake, that's when we say he's gone into President Pierce mode. <laughs> Which means he's drinking, right? He's, he's hitting the liquor cabinet. <laughs> he had every reason. He had all sorts of horrible tragedies in his life. He did. Um, he, yeah. If people don't know, he was, I believe, on his way to being inaugurated or right before that when his son was crushed between cars of a, a railway train. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't know how many other kinds of trains there are. And his wife just refused to go to Washington at that point. She felt that the death of their son was was God's punishment for his having the hubris to seek the presidency in the first place. So he just hung out in the White, so- White House, excuse me, I almost said White Sox. He hung out with the White Sox for four years just by himself drinking and uh, not too different from one of our more recent presidents, except, you know, Diet Coke instead of whiskey. Is that Obama or who? <laughs> um, yeah. 
It's Obama. So, uh, you know, as you know, Stephen uh, has his own podcast, Infinite Inning. He also has, uh, I believe it's uh, currently on hiatus, a podcast uh, that, uh, with Mike Farron and Craig Hunter where they talk about the works of Bob Dylan for Indeed. some godforsaken reason. <laughs> um, and now that you've heard this, uh, Stephen and I will be doing the presidential podcast where we go through each president, one a week, and talk about stories about them. I used to be very good at presidential trivia. Can you name them in order? Because I think I can. I'm oh, not going to do it boy. for you now. I, but I, I can't. But I would. I bet. I bet I would score in the 90th percentile. Yeah, it's not. It's once you have certain kind of benchmark guys, it's it's pretty easy to do. I just get sort of mixed up in that the whole shuffle where there were like three in one year about 1820. Because, yeah, exactly. You know, that's my that, yeah. right. That's my that's my that's my blind spot. Like I can do 20. I can do the 20th century to current easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some screw ups. Yeah, my screw ups really are like um, eighteen hundred to civil war. Right. That's 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 my messy part. Um, but uh, anyway, we're gonna talk <laughs> about baseball in this show. Yeah. Uh, we did have it's 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 uh it's unfortunate. Like we did have a, a very nice guest lined up to talk about one of the playoff series. Um, we started recording this. It is currently uh, Thursday afternoon at one oh eight p.m. Central Time, and uh, I got a message from our guest. Uh, literally six minutes ago um and and a very understandable personal emergency and that guest is unable to join us i made a quick uh attempt to to to, to zig a little bit get us a different guest and that person uh just flat out can't do it this afternoon so we're gonna go guest free this week we will definitely uh have a guest next week i promise you uh so we're gonna talk about baseball obviously most of that talk will be about the playoffs and the postseason we're in a weird spot because i uh, want to stick to the podcast schedule core on thursday it's out on friday morning we do have a, a huge game tonight that we will not know the result of between the Dodgers and the giants but well, that's okay that's how things are sometimes uh and then we'll go kind of right into what is normally segment three and talk about um our best musical guest of the podcast run because there's a because <laughs> after six years there is a new album from kowloon walled city um that makes me so happy, and I'm so happy to play on the show. We'll talk about your emails, and there's one um, very important Astros email, Astros-based email that I want to get into with Stephen and also, um, honestly, with my audience. Um, and then we'll catch up with Stephen and see what's going on with him. We'll have a little moment of culture. We'll be out of here, uh, and you can all listen and get on with your carefree lifestyle. Uh, you ready to talk about baseball, Stephen? I so very much am. I don't know if you're aware of this playoffs are going on. I have heard that. How do you, as as someone who loves baseball yeah. and, and has worked in it, and me too, do you sometimes feel on the days, I, I'm, I'm tipping my hand here, sometimes 16 hours of TV is too much for a single day, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. So on the days that we had four straight games, after a while you start to feel like you're having kind of some low quality time in your life. You need to get <laughs> off the couch for a bit. <laughs> Um, I watch them all. I, I do. I the first time I felt that way actually uh, was I was you know, we were doing a live chat at Fangraphs during Game Four of the Astros White Sox, uh, and that game became a slog, right. a real slog. And I and then I was like, just just you know, get through these things and get this over with. It's it's, it's you know the the equation is solved. We know who's going to win, um, and it's just kind of over. And, and and it's just that game went f- over four hours and. Um, and yeah, that game was a slog. So, but no, for the most part, I've watched every game. It felt weird yesterday that there just was no game, right? Um, because we had, um, you know, every the, the three of the four series ended on four instead of five, um, and so it was just weird. Like yesterday is what is the day that for me felt really weird in the sense that just, that there was suddenly no baseball. 
Well, especially because the the adrenaline of these postseason series has been so intense at times. And you're right when when they're lined up in a row like that, when you have like one that's really tight followed by one that's a blowout, it it does it it is hard to keep up your attention because you're in kind of a a refractory period at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so you you need to figure out a new way to to focus. But you're right the the, the yesterday w- was was odd just because we weren't in this incredibly pressurized environment. You could have thought about something like climate change or fascism or something to keep the anxiety up if you had needed to. <laughs> Is that something important to you to keep your anxiety at a high level? No, it's it's actually important to me to minimize it. <laughs> Denial is how I run my life. My any any issue can be solved by just saying la la la. I can't hear you. <laughs> it works when you were three. It works when you're in your fifties. <laughs> exactly. um, let's start with the American League because uh, we know who the ALCS is going to be. Um, and first in. Um, I guess a minor upset because, again, no playoff series can be anything more than a minor upset um, because it's such a short series. The, the Red Sox took out um, those those plucky Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, they looked awful in the first game. They looked overmatched. They looked screwed. Um, and, and then the bats came alive, and that was that. I'm so glad you said what you said. Uh, over on the Infinite Inning this week, I was talking about one of the series that the Yankees lost during George Steinbrenner's reign, the 1980 series. And he had a tendency to cast every postseason series that they lost as a failure of character. Mm. And it's not that. It's a short series. And this is a great example of that, right? I mean, I do feel like it is something of an upset given the regular, the disparity in the regular season records. But the the first two games were kind of blowouts in one direction or another. They were not particularly tense. But the last two, 6-4, 6-5, very nerve-wracking the whole way. Could have gone in either direction. And it just happens that that's where it, it landed. I don't think there are huge insights to be drawn about either team from the way that this series wrapped up. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, 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 and it's why it's, I'm, I'm keeping my brand. And, and at no point during any sort of playoff preview did I ask a guest who they thought was going to win. Um, I don't ask anyone who they think is going to win because I'll set up before I'll say again, anyone who can tell you with any confidence who's going to win a playoff game or playoff series is lying to you and themselves. It's just, it's such a tiny, it's just a tiny needle move one way or the other. Um, I thought this was, um, if you, you know, when I think about the keys to the Red Sox win, um, you know, obviously like, you know, Kike Hernandez had a great three games, right? Yep. Um, and, and there's also, th- I thought Alex Cora did a, uh, unbelievably phenomenal job of game management. He really did. And the secret weapon in, in this series was Tanner Houck. I mean, just a, a, a great pitcher with a wonderful slider that really carves up the strike zone. And one of the mysteries of the season for me was why, the Red Sox jerked him on and off the roster all year. They they kept breaking glass for him whenever there was an emergency, but they didn't seem to want to have him around full time. And he clearly, based on, it seems to me, his, his debut last year, mm-hmm. and then what he did this year, I mean, I don't know if he's going to be an ace in the future or not, but he has this great ability, and they were able to bring him in in this series, and he pitched very effectively 
for six innings, which is the second most number, or I guess tied for second most number of, of innings on the team. It was Nick Pavetta, believe it or not. I mean, when you win, oh, a that series, was the thing. Like my secret, well, my you know that was your hero. My hero was Nick Pavetta. Well, I was about to say when you win a postseason series with you know Nick Pavetta being one of your most valuable pitchers, you know, I mean, that's one of those things that does make it so hard to predict. And I, I mean, similarly, like uh, Xander Bogarts did not uh, uh, play well down the stretch. Mm-hmm. Devers did not play well down the stretch. And yet these guys killed the ball over the last week. So these these are some of the, the random factors that make it so difficult to predict. Yeah. And Pavetta is a guy who, um, in terms of just pure pitch data, right? has some of the best raw pitch data literally of anyone in baseball. Um, when I was with the Astros, we tried to acquire him when he was a Philly, right? Uh, constantly was trying. Um, because it was literally like his raw pitch data literally matched up with number one starters in baseball. Um, and and it comes with um, on a good day fringy command. Um, and on a bad day, much worse than that. And, and there's pitch execution, pitch execution issues, but his stuff is remarkable. And it was just kind of fun to watch it play like that, you know, once in a while. And he got into some trouble once, you know, he, 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 he went all Pavetta and, you know, and, and would, and would, you know, absolutely like groove just a middle, middle straight 95 and then those get hit. Um, but you know, Cora's ability to kind of, navigate a series where you had to keep going with lefty starters against a team that absolutely destroys lefty starters. Um, I thought it was kind of fascinating. And I, I thought he just did a phenomenal job of game management. You know, we talk a lot about managers on the show and how, like, I don't think you or I or anyone really on the outside can really judge a manager's job because how much of it, it, it right. you know, goes well beyond that kind of thing. But in terms of just the game management aspect, I thought, I thought, you know, we can talk about Tanner Howe. We can talk about Nick Bavetta. Um, and then we talk about, you know, the bats coming alive and stuff like that. But I thought, you know, Alex Cora actually had a, a massive impact on the result of this series. I wanted to add, before we get to that, let me ask you something about Pavetta, because we had at different times a similar conversation. And I don't want to rehash this totally because I, I think I talked about it the last time I was here. But when you were with the Astros, we were talking about Garrett Cole mm. and that the Astros had some insight into what would make Cole a better pitcher than he happened to be at that moment with the Pirates. And at this point, ex-Pirates pitchers are scattered all over the majors. They get better as soon as they leave Pittsburgh, right? The Phillies have a little of that going, too. Not that mm. Pavetta was dominant this year, although, if, again, if you look at his raw stats, he was striking out like 11, 12 guys per nine innings over the course of the season. That's hard to do as a starter. Right. So yeah. as you said. Yeah, as you said, the stuff is really great. Is it putting the the pirates aside, who are just kind of the the poster child children for for this sort of thing? It seems like the Phillies have a little bit of that going too, where they have trouble with with getting pitchers consistent, or they regress. And I, I wonder if that's a failure of is it coaching analytics, or it could be as simple as the fact that year in year out in recent seasons, the Phillies have a really hard time fielding a coherent defense and they're yeah. always at the bottom in that category yeah and i mean obviously defense means less when you're nick, nick pavetta because there's fewer balls in play uh, right. you're missing so many bats but you know pavetta and cole are, are very different guy you know cole was a complete usage overhaul um usage and location overhaul it was um like you've spent your entire pirates career throwing two seamers inside and we're just going to ask you to stop doing that <laughs> um and just like four seam elevation 
breaking balls um, at the bottom of the zone, right? It, it, you know, that's what we're going to do. And it's, it's not, and that was like the thing about anything. And, and like, even like the first real Astro success story and that kind of thing, call him the Q. Um, it wasn't about like, you know, getting him coached up and getting him, you know, getting this pitch better. It was about just changing what he can do. Um, right. We know what he can do. It's like this change. Let's, let's you know accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Right? It's, it's not not that hard. Um, Pavetta was a different case. Pavetta was like, "This shit's great. Can Strami get him to command it?" Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 that was that was you know Garrett Cole was changing usage and location, um, and and Nick Pavetta, the project of Nick Pavetta, be it for the Phillies or the Red Sox or potentially any other team that acquired him, was really about improving pitch ex- pitch execution. Did I ever tell you Strom yelled at me by email? I mean, no. Yeah, it was when I was, I mean, I'm still at BP, but at, at BP many years ago, I wrote something, I think, about Eddie Bain when the Angels let him go. And he read it and was pissed off at me about it. And uh, I I just said, hey, it's really great to hear from you. I have your 77 or 78 tops card. And uh, so I've, I've followed you for all these years. And I'm, it's really great to hear from you, even if you're criticizing me. And he was nicer after that. He's an exceptionally nice guy. Yeah. Um he like two two or three spring trainings ago it was um he literally i was talking to him and he said hey hold on a second hold on a second and he literally like pulled out a manila, a manila folder filled with papers and one of them was a bp article i wrote like in 2010 <laughs> or something i said why do you have this go I, I keep everything i read that i like i'm like you're absolutely insane okay well um, he didn't keep my article then. he may have i mean who knows <laughs> the, the eddie bain article might have been in there right um <laughs> So, so the Red Sox have advanced to the to the American League Championship Series. There, they will play uh, the Houston Astros, who beat the White Sox in a series as defined by soap operas as the baseball itself. Um, let's let's start with the baseball part. Um, the Astros won the first two games in Houston, looking very good. Um, looked like they were going to sweep them. They had a five to one lead early in Game Three. Uh, the White Sox suddenly remembered uh, the importance of hitting baseballs with the bat. Um, scored a ton of runs, won. All of a sudden, it looked like this might be a fun series. Then they got blown out in game four. Um, this one was defined by the pitching, or lack thereof, it, of the Chicago White Sox. You know, they were going into it with this rotation that they really like, and um, Lance Lynn didn't pitch well. Uh, Lucas Giolito was was okay, I guess. And I'm gonna, Dylan Cease was not very good. Um, and then Carlos Rodon had the most electric inning of the postseason mm-hmm. and then, and then was just kind of meh. Um, and I, you know, their inability to, to get depth and, and quality from their starters is, is why they're at home now. That, and, and they were confronted by a lineup that has just one soft spot, which is, is catcher, right? right? Every other position hits at a high level. And even center field, which back in April with Miles Straw out there seemed like it was going to be another one of those weak spots for the Astros. And I don't mean to insult Miles Straw because he's not useless. He has value. He's like a right? two-three win player just off the defense and the running and he can draw some walks. Right, exactly. So, I mean, even though he was kind of a below average offensive player, he wasn't way below average. But then they plus that up over the course of the season. And, of course, Kyle Tucker emerged as the next star that they've they've minted out over the course of, of by now what almost a decade. Mm. So it's just a relentless, relentless lineup. 
And one of the things that happened for the White Sox over the course of the season is that that pitching, as good as it was early, it did start to wear down a little Mm -hmm. bit over the course of the season. And I know that momentum, we've just talked about that, right, is an overrated thing for the postseason. But that's not so much momentum as a long-term trend. And it, it just seemed to be going in the wrong direction to face this particular lineup. It's yeah, it's interesting in that, and this is you know, boy, this is a, this is kind of an ugly question, but you know, the White Sox cruise to the Central, right? Um, I, I bet there are casual baseball fans who couldn't even tell you who finished second in the in the AL Central, and the shitty question is, did they only do enough to win their division? You know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of roster construction, was that hey, this team's good enough to win the division, um, but is it really good enough to? play the Astros, the Rays, or the Red Sox, I'm not sure. I think it is absolutely true. And if we went back over it kind of historically, we'd see that I think this was particularly true. The Twins are a great example of this. In the years that the Twins were winning the division every year and then would get knocked off by the Yankees in the postseason every year. And those Yankees teams didn't go on to win for the most part either. It's just that the Yankees had been in a more competitive environment because in that period, Cleveland wasn't really trying. The Mm. White Sox were rebuilding and so on. So it was a soft division. They were winning it going away every year just by being kind of the one club that was had a had a half decent roster. And I feel like the White Sox were doing that this year. And with unbalanced schedules that that distorts how good your team is. Mm. And obviously they had a lot of good stuff going on, but they also had some stuff that they tolerate year in, year out, like two of the last three years. Lurie Garcia ends up playing every single day. I was about to bring him up, and that was one of the thoughts I had. And again, shitty thought. But like, I, it was just like, you know, do championship teams really roll out, you know, Lurie Garcia and Cesar Hernandez every day? No. And I mean, but the, the Cesar Hernandez deal or acquisition, I should say, was a knock-on from the Kimbrell acquisition, right. which blew up on them. And I know you're not the biggest Nick Madrigal fan. I really like Nick Madrigal. I, I felt really crushed. I was excited when he was doing as well as he was before he got hurt. And I, I, it still kind of bugs me that, that they gave up this guy, who I do think is going to be a decent player for a while, to get Kimbrell, who we, we saw this movie before. Like, we, <laughs> we know... I, I mean, I, again, it's like not a sure thing that he's going to go from an ERA of 0.2 or something with the, the the Cubs, excuse me, to five with the White Sox. But he sort of did that with the Cubs already. So it shocked me, really, that that they did that. And and of course, it, it bit them even in the postseason. And so um, you use the term I always use for the Astros offense, which is relentless. Um, mm. It's relentless at bats. And it's the I think one of the like, it's just the quality of the at bat. You know, the only unpatient hitter in that lineup is Yuli, and Yuli is an impatient hitter because that's, you know, almost by design because he can hit everything. Um, and so, you know, you sw- should swing at pitches you can hit, and there's most most pitches Yuli can hit, and so he swings. It's hard to, you know, get that out of someone who's 34 and has never thought about it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it's uh, that lineup's unbelievable. But there is, you know, so the ALCS is going to be. Boston and, and Houston first two games are in Houston. Um, it turns out that, I mean, Houston took a big hit where, you know, Lance McCullers left game four. It felt like a really early pull, especially for a team mm. whose bullpen um, is okay. But if you, if you, if you look at it on the 
the level of of playoff bullpens it's a shaky one but right you know it, the, the innings the bridge innings to presley are, are are a little little scary still and um but it sounds like you know lance mccullers has a forearm strain um i know as we speak that they, they've not made a decision yet but it sounds like he's going to be out for the alcs that's a, and that you know losing your one starter for a team that will you know then be leaning on you know luis garcia for Amber valdez and and maybe Jose or Keedy. Um Those are good pitchers, but that, that feels like a much different playoff rotation without, um, you know, Lance McCullers taking two, two games in that series. It's a huge blow. And this also makes for, for a segue to some of the soap opera stuff, because yeah. this pitcher, whatever he's done in the regular season, whatever his injuries has been a tremendous postseason pitcher. He has pitched 16 postseason games in his career, 57 and a third innings. His ERA is 2.83. He just really has risen to the occasion every single time. And that's not to say he's a bad pitcher in the regular season, but he hasn't quite been that. And to lose him and then, as you said, rely on the pitchers you, you named, who on any given day can be quite good. Yeah, right? for sure. But, but, I mean, this guy is really someone I feel like opposing teams have to worry about, McCullers, when they get to October. And to not see him in the next round is a, a huge break for the Red Sox. Conversely, to, to, to refer to that soap opera, to complain about whatever the Astros have done in the past and not tip your cap to the fact that they're bringing someone like McCullers, I think is kind of low class. <laughs> and um, so let's get to the soap opera aspect of the Astros White Sox. And, okay. and there's two of them. Um, the bigger soap opera occurred after game three when the, the White Sox staged a, a, a rousing offensive comeback to, to win that game. And uh, White Sox reliever Ryan Tapera went on and said, Basically, that isn't interesting that the White Sox struck out a lot this game. And then, you know, we thought there was some funny stuff going on at, or, or, you know, insinuated because they never really said um, that the Astros might have been doing some funny stuff in the two home games. Um, and I get asked about sometimes, and, and we'll get into this later when I kind of want to talk about me and the Astros a little bit more in, in detail. But, you know, I was asked about this by a few people and like, I don't know. Like I can tell you, I don't think the Astros are cheating, and and a huge part of that is because of how Major League Baseball has responded. You know, there are um, a lot of people uh, in the employ of Major League Baseball who are in the tunnels, in the video room, um, uh, just outside the dugout. Like, there's tons of them mm. making sure this doesn't happen, right? Right. Um, so that's the that's the you know the the main reason I think uh, that I don't think so. But I don't know. At the same time, my other part of my answer is very much that the Astros have absolutely earned this kind of skepticism and ire, right? Um, and, and I don't, you know, I, I, I still follow plenty of people on Astros Twitter and they, you know, they get all pissed and then all kind of defensive and shitty when this happens. Um, and like, it's like tough shit. Like they can they kind of earned this kind of stuff, even if they're not doing it. It's never going to go away. Nor should it. And it, it's unfortunate. And I mean, it will follow some of these players when they, become eligible for the the hall of fame we're gonna hear it all over again yeah it's interesting that and, and you know can say but it's interesting like it it, it is with these guys for but like guys who go away like i was interested to see, like george springer seems to be done with it you know what i mean <laughs> right but more like the, the 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 reaction of of the people be it media or fans seem to be done with it in terms of george springer who's now wearing you know a blue jersey or a lighter blue jersey 
And that may be part of it, that you go on and you perform and people say, oh, well, maybe it, the effects were overstated in, in the first place. And I, I'm not trying to whitewash what they did because, you know, what they did. There's no need to. Yeah. Yeah. It hurts a little bit. You know, I mean, this is this is the the great line from the, the great Gatsby about the, the Black Sox, right? Or about the people who fixed that series that you were tampering with the faith of I forget what number he used, 100 million people or whatever. When when you do that, that does leave a bruise or a scar. And so you're, you're right that that is something that they've earned. It's something that you're going to hear, but to refer to the the black Sox again, and it's appropriate since we're talking about Tony La Russa and, and the white Sox, I also felt Cause Tony like, managed those black. Sox. <laughs> he's been around that long. <laughs> he, he came up, he roomed with Buck Weaver on the road that year, um, helped Buck Weaver get some oral surgery to correct some of his, his uh, deficiencies in, in his teeth. Ever see Buck Weaver smile? Anyway, um, <laughs> no. So, well, so, I'll, I'll tell you this. Like, so whenever Eight Men Out came out, the the John Sayles film, and a pretty good film, kind of kind of slow moving, deliberate, but like broadly accurate, at least in terms of what people understood then. And you have all these handsome Hollywood guys yeah, playing yeah. the Black Sox, and then you look at actual pictures of the Black Sox, who are your typical malnourished Americans from 1920, and you realize <laughs> that no, they didn't look like John Cusack at all. They they. <laughs> look like they they needed some kind of remediation so but it, my point is when when charles comiskey uh the owner went to ban johnson saying the series had been fixed ban johnson said that sounds like the crying of the whipped cur the beaten dog and i felt like that's what tony Larusso was doing that was the whine of the beaten dog in this series and um and the other soap opera occurred late in in game four uh with the game out of hand um, and the Astros clearly on their way to a win. Um, Jose Abreu, who's hit twenty something times this year, twenty two, um, got hit again. Uh, and and Tony La Russa was very upset about it. And after the game, um, said it was it was intentional. Um, I don't think it was. I don't know if it was. I don't think it was. Um, but you know, it felt like every time Jose Abreu got hit this year, Tony La Russa was highly yeah. defensive and thought it was intentional. But he's hit 15 times a year every year today. Right. I mean, this year he he happened to set a career high and I don't I don't know. But why would there be an organized campaign to use Jose Abreu as a pincushion? Right. Um, yeah, I can see them throwing it Ryan to if he got up, um, <laughs> you know, somehow. But I just don't see I don't I don't see that kind of thing. Um, but now the soap opera is going to continue because, of course, the Red Sox for the first two games are in Houston. The Red Sox are managed by Alex. Yeah. Cora, um, who played an essential role in the nineteen in the, in the rather nineteen in the twenty seventeen scheme, um, and so it, it's I I do think if you're the Red Sox you have to you know and not and like the Red Sox almost outside like the PR people you have to do something to try to mitigate the distraction of this because it's going to be one. Is it just a question of of in terms of a distraction? journalists asking questions during I the... think so yeah well in that case maybe the fact that everything's over zoom is a bit distancing it, it may be I mean there's there's some in-person stuff now though um and it it's so so I, yeah that might help and then and there is some tension that I don't really understand between Cora and some Astros players that I I've no I've, I'm not quite sure what the origin of it is do you think it's blame for those, I, the faction that was not involved. This is with a 
yeah, this was players who were involved. It, I, I'm not ah. really quite sure what happened there. Um, I don't, I just, I, I, I wish I knew and I just flat out don't. Um, so this will, this will be interesting. Um, let's move to the National League for a second. We have, we have, <laughs> right. we have one, uh, we have one series done. Um, the Braves eliminated the Brewers in four games. Um, this was a, I thought it was a really entertaining series. It was. Um, but it, it was, they were all very close games. They're all very low scoring games. Um, runs were at a premium for both teams. Um, in the end, the Brewers just had almost no offense. And it was interesting. I was talking to Ben Clemens about it, and Ben said, you know, the going, going into the playoffs, the Milwaukee was the worst offense in the playoffs by a significant margin. Right. And, and you know, obviously there's a lot of talk about Milwaukee heading in, and with good reason, because they had this terrifying 1-2-3 of, of, of Burns, Woodruff, Peralta, um, all three of who pitched quite well. Um, but none of that means shit if you can't score a run. Um, and at one point, you know, after three games of this series, the Brewers had scored in one inning. The Rowdy Tellez home run in game one was the only time they crossed the plate. Um, and then, you know, they obviously scored just enough and then lose on a, of all things, a left-on-left home run by Freddie Freeman against uh, Josh Hader. And it felt like a kind of a sudden surprise. Like, I, you know, I thought I would have called Milwaukee the slight fa- Again, you can't be more than a slight favorite. Milwaukee was the slight favorite in this series, right? I thought so. I thought with those pitchers, if you had said to me before, like, they're going to win three, two, one games and go on, even if they don't hit, I would have said, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that seems entirely reasonable. And you're right about, about Freddie Freeman. It was like Brutus rising up and stabbing Caesar. It was an assassination. <laughs> like, if you'd put that on strat cards, you know, Freddie Freeman is not homering off of Hater. Right, he, he, rolled, he rolled a 212. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was just so unlikely. At the same time, I, I was excited by Freeman, who who is just a great player. Heading into his free agent year, I, I feel like there's no chance he leaves Atlanta, all things being equal. And I, I kind of hope he doesn't because he's he's been so good for for that franchise. So it was it was fun to see in a way. But also, you know, you really thought that the Brewers had been around a long time without experiencing the kind of, of championship success that some other franchises have. And and I did feel like with this pitching staff, even with, with Devin Williams having lost his championship match against a wall, that they had a, a chance of of running the table. And no, just I, I someone did ask me to make a prediction and, and I picked the Brewers to be there at the end. So I'm I'm already wrong. And <laughs> and that's why. I mean I just really thought that those pitchers would carry through. Um Breaking news on Twitter. Um, I don't want to get into this until there's more confirmation. But uh, you know, Jeff Passan, who tends to be right, says the that that uh, Mike Schilt is out as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Wow. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, so the Braves move on. The Braves. I, I actually, you know, I did think um, Snitker was did a, again. Like I, I thought his game management was outstanding. Um, his, his, he, he makes and matches pitchers in a very, very effective way. Um, and they, they kind of hit a little bit more than the Brewers <laughs> and that was that. Um, and you know, they have, you know, obviously their pitching is really good. Max Reed looked like a Cy Young candidate in the second half of the year. Um, and they might be more dangerous than people think, but in the national league, um, we don't know who they're going to play because, uh, against Thursday afternoon and in about six and a half hours, the Dodgers and Giants are playing the only game five of the of the four DS series. 
And this has been, I don't know if you agree with me, this has been the most compelling of the four series. And much of that is simply the matchup of the two best teams in baseball. And do we get to a point where, like, it, like this feels like the World Series, even though it's a DS and, and, and everything after this might be a bit of a, a letdown? Yeah, it kind of... Like, the best series is a DS series. It's very strange. Yes. And, I, I mean, obviously, we don't know what's coming. The, the thing about this series is it is such a grudge match, given the long, long history between these two, be, with the fact that, that they, they played each other to more or less a standstill in the regular season. The and records, never played in the playoffs. Right, right, because physically they couldn't. They did have that, that 62 one-game playoff that, that the Giants won. Uh, and the Bobby and, Thompson game was a, and the that, that true, was That was an extra game, right? Uh, I think that also was an extra game. That yes. wasn't the last game of the year. That was an extra game. Right. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I think that was a game one fifty five. So I think yeah. it, I think it counted uh, in terms of, of regular season stuff. But, but you're I'm right. saying like, but yeah, it was it was like a it was like a one sixty three. It was just, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a long history of these kinds of confrontations between these two teams. Nineteen thirty four, uh, the Dodgers were out of it, but the Cardinals needed to win at the very end of the season. And instead, the Dodgers sweep them out, and the Cardinals sneak past them into the World Series. Like, there's a lot of this stuff. So I, I'm I'm sure that. You know, Cody Bellinger, when he gets that faraway look on his face between pitches, is not thinking, gosh, this is just like 1934. I kind of <laughs> hope he is. but he... Max Muncy is thinking that even though he can't play. <laughs> Ma- yeah, Max has some spare time on his hands right now. He's got right more now. time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he he may be thinking that. And and I, I, am, I, am, I am heartbroken that Brandon Belt is broken and Max Muncy is mangled because I, I like both those two players a lot. And it, it would be a little different with them in there. And uh, maybe they can get back for for the next round. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, but these games themselves, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, like this is just my perception. Three of the four were not super compelling games in that they were undecided until the last minute. Sure, sure. But um, they were still exciting because of, as you said, who they were. Yeah, absolutely. I want like kind of what's going on. By the way, I do know that there's someone with the Dodgers who listens to this show. If you can get any player, if they win this game, if you can get any player in the press to say, this is for 1934, <laughs> I will buy you one burrito. Um, <laughs> I will chip in dessert of your choice. You, I, see, now on, you now have like burrito and like a sundae or something. You're yes. rolling. If you give any player, if the Dodgers win and you get any player to say, this is for 1934, <laughs> um, duly noted. Um and and the funny thing is, like you know, again, staying on brand, whoever wins this series is going to be a minor favorite against the Braves because it's seven games, and who knows what the hell is going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I just I don't think either of these teams has a lineup quite as soft as the Brewers proved to be. So, uh, are you ready to do hot takes? Yeah, yeah. So this has been confirmed. Um, Mike Mike Schilt is is no longer the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. I have no idea what the story is. Um, I don't know if, if this is for purely baseball reasons or something weird happened. Don't know. This broke literally minutes ago. Um, my first reaction, honestly, was like, and again, I, I guess my first reaction is, is, is you heard it when I talked about breaking news in the sense that, like, Jeff Passan, kind of right when he reports stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Report, report it, and I went, I don't want to talk about it. I want to make sure this is really happening. Because it's just like, what? I mean, obviously, horrible first half, incredible second half. Um Bounced off and it bounced out in a really good wild card game. All took out the Dodgers. Um, on the surface, I don't really understand this. Do you? No, I can okay. only I can only imagine that 
there's maybe some personality issue because this was not a great team. And I think there's a lot that's fluky about it in a way, or that it was at the end of its time. And this may be the last hurrah for this cast. So in a sense, he may be leaving just in time. They may be sparing mm. him from something. But, you know, the, the thing about Schilt that always shocked me was, you know, he replaced Mike Matheny in the middle of a season and he was an interim guy. And I always feel a little skeptical when teams and, and the Rockies just did this with their GM, too, which is a similar thing. Just like, well, we kept him because we got used to having him around. This guy who just happened to be, <laughs> happened to be on the staff. We're right. not going to break with the past so much as continue it in a different face, in a in a different mask. So, but he stayed for, you know, three and a half years and seemed to, to prove himself in a lot of ways. And he, he had three postseason teams in the last three years. Highly, like, he felt like he was highly respected in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So you can't, you can't say that that he hadn't proved himself. But I will say, I think about this all the time. And the Cardinals have been such a well-run organization that that maybe I'm being dumb about this. But seriously, ask yourself, with the possible exception of Dylan Carlson, maybe Flaherty being healthy next year because he wasn't healthy this year, who on this Cardinals roster is going to be better in 2022 than they were in 2021? Uh, I think Tyler O'Neill. Well, I think uh, you know, obviously he had an incredible second half, but a lot of the underlying data suggests that there there was a really there was a real change there and a reason for that improvement. Okay. And I think the second half Tyler O'Neill could be a full season of Tyler O'Neill. Um, I think Edmundo Sosa is kind of interesting. Um, and obviously he became the starting shortstop in the second half and and turned out to be an upgrade both offensively and defensively from from Dijon. Um, and I kind of, I think Edmund has made some, some changes, not, not like more O'Neill's changes are approach based. Like Sosa just went from a guy who can hit a little bit to, to a guy who can hit a little bit with sneaky pop mm. and that changes everything. Like, you know, he just, he, he, his power went from not there to, to fringy and that's a huge jump. If you can hit and, and you can turn no power into fringy power, that's, that's a big, that's a big, makes a big difference. Um, but I hear you like, I, you know. I don't think Molina is going to be as good again. I don't think Wainwright's going to be as good again. I think Goldschmidt's on the wrong side of the age curve, um, even though he had a great second half. Um, so I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Um, and they don't have the guys coming up behind they them. Don't have, they don't have the guys coming behind them. I think that's the bigger issue is like who's going to – their holes are going to have to be filled externally. Right. And, and I mean, again, they've, they've been willing to, to do that. And even Sosa is 25 uh, this year. Even O'Neill is going to be 27 next year. I do. I do hope O'Neill, by the way, retains us because this has been a guy who's been a prospect for seemingly like 50 years, right? And has always been undermined by strike zone problems. And it's not like he conquered that exactly, but if he he even got a little bit more selective, allowing him to get into that great power, he got he much more selective. Yeah, his 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 plate discipline, his swing decisions improved dramatically in the second half. This guy who walked two times in April, twice, um, you know, and and had uh, you know twenty something walks in the second half, and 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 the numbers suggested his swing decisions may have been even better than that in, in terms of um, just really cutting down his chase rate. See, I'd be really curious, and I don't think I've seen a study on this. Like, how many guys retain that as time goes on? Yeah, it was kind of long enough to make me comfortable. Like, it wasn't just a one month thing. It was like it was like a nice steady line of improvement throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on that guy. All right. Well, then he, he may be in that category then. 
So uh, this 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 unexpected Cardinals tangent helps lead me to the final bullet point I want to talk about in the segment, which is um, you know right now you know twenty six teams have are, are moving on with their lives right or right. I guess twenty twenty five because we don't know the outcome of the of the Giants and the Dodgers. Um, so I'm going to start. I, I was going to start with with Milwaukee, but I want to kind of start with the Cardinals here because they just fired the man. Was the Cardinals season the success? Like I, I understand saying the right thing in the media. I understand answering like, "Hey, we didn't win the World Series. We weren't good enough. The season was a failure." Right? Um, but I, there is a scale, no matter what. Um, you can um, evaluate these things on a lot of different right. And so, like, I want like two seventy-seven win teams. These both here's two teams that had identical seventy-seven and eighty-five records. The Detroit Tigers and the New York Mets. The New York Mets season was a failure, and I think the Detroit Tigers have to be pretty optimistic and happy with what just happened. Right there, there's kind of an aesthetic basis to this, right? And and to it's, me, but it's based on expectations. Well, partially. I mean, remember that there are two things that are happening, right? The team, each team, is trying to, in theory, right? This is the the platonic ideal of this. It's not always true, but each team is trying to maintain or improve its place. So there's there's that aspect of things. And as you said, meet the expectation game. The other thing is just, did the team, to me this is important because baseball is ultimately an entertainment, did the team give their fans a reason to watch the games, to have at least some hope, some entertainment, some diversion? And I think with some of these teams that did not do well, the answer is clearly yes, whether by by planning or by accident. Like there were reasons to turn on an Angels game this year, obviously, even though they were 77 and 85. The Tigers, yes, a reason to turn that that game on. Because they might have won, but they gave the fans optimism for the future. And somebody to, you know, that that you want to see come to bat. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I think I was I, I was talking about this on on the infinite inning about how I, I got an email late in the season from the Orioles because the uh, I, I have bought tickets for Camden Yards games before, and I'm on their mailing list. And they said this was like mid-September. Hey, the Rangers are coming in. Buy it. Like you name the price. Just just come, please. <laughs> like any because it gets lonely here. And the, the thing is, as much as I love baseball, I, I, and putting aside the pandemic, like even if there were, were no risk to it, I don't think I wanted to do that because. There's there's nothing to even be sort of a, a, an amateur scout about or to just be excited that this guy is coming up. Both those teams were not only bad, they were bland. And to me, that's a worse sin. Yes. The, 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 the bad and boring is the worst combination. Um, and they, they both were that. Um, now, now to like a more complex question, which is. If you're the Milwaukee Brewers right now, um, you've made the playoffs, what, I think, four times in a row now. Um this was the felt like the best roster as we talked about before, like kind of the best roster for postseason series. Mm-hmm. Um, you played a, a whopping total of four playoff games. You lost three of them. Was this season a success? Because I guarantee you they don't feel that way, but I don't want to talk about how they feel. Um, did the Brewers have a good season? Was Is it a successful season with them getting bounced in the DS? They won 95 games. Mm-hmm. They were very fun to watch on a number of occasions. I mean, they, through, consistently. They, they, right. They cruised in a division that was expected to be very competitive. Right. And and those those pitchers are are a reason to watch. They 
they were tremendously good. The thing about pitching staffs is is they're scary. So you don't know if you can do this trick again. You know, they there's so much variance. Um, and in, in terms of the future, if I were them, and, and maybe they have a better idea of this than we do, but do, is Christian Yelich now in his Don Mattingly post-88 phase because of back problems? Wow. Yeah. What a great comp. Wow. Yeah. That's what worries me. Because imagine if this team had gone in with a healthy, productive Christian Yelich. Then you'd have that starting rotation, and once every three times through the order, Superman, or right. every three innings. And that... That took a few home runs that didn't happen in this no, series that, just, that they might have had. Absolutely changes the dynamic completely. Right. So um, that that's the question. But I mean that that's not something they could. It's help. interesting. Like your whole reason to watch thing is kind of like completely moved my brain here. That, that's not. <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. Right. And, and was this season a success? Um, and like it's it, you know I think the Cardinals with their big second like that's a successful season. Yeah. Like, um, but the, my biggest question like are you know the Brewers are the teams that just got bounced. Like did the the Rays won a hundred games. They won the, the the most competitive division in baseball. Um, and then they lost the first year to the Red Sox. Did the Rays have a successful season? Especially, yeah, I think so. Again, like I think you're way more often way more positive on this with with your fun to watch <laughs> measurement well, with the, with the, with that being a big piece of the pie. When for me, it's almost a zero. You know how. And again, I don't mean to keep going back to the infinite inning, but when last you were on, you were on with Mike and we were talking about, Mike Farron, I should say, we were talking about draft picks and I made a point about, I can't even remember who I was talking about now, but third overall draft picks and that some team had blown all these third overall draft picks. It was Mike Zanino. Mike Zanino, right. And you were saying like, Mike Zanino's a huge win. And I, I was agreeing with you actually, but more to the point that that he was like well above average in terms of outcomes. And right. I feel like, you know, you've always had that philosophy and it's right given given just how variable outcomes from the draft are. But I feel like that same thing applies to a certain extent to the regular season. And you look at the AL East and you have the Rays winning 100 games in a division that had three other 90 game winners. And they also did it if we just want to talk about, again, dollars shouldn't be a fan thing, right? But if we want to talk about it from like the wonky, you know, team point of view, doing it with their resources against those other teams. They didn't sign George Springer. You know, I mean, that's a tremendous, tremendous thing. And they unveiled Wander Franco. And like every every position was at least decent. They were comparable to the Astros that way. In yeah. that they were they were very There's no dead innings. No. They're very few. And everybody does something. And when they're not hitting, most of them play defense. Mm -hmm. And it, especially in the outfield. Like that no, I feel like they were a lot of fun. And this is it was a weird team for them because maybe, as as we found out, the pitching wasn't as deep as we've come to expect from them in the past. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like on every level it was a success except for winning the championship part. But, you know, one of the reasons that I, that I have this perspective and, and we can, you know, talk about 1934 again or any year is that – and this goes to Dusty Baker and whether Dusty Baker should be in the Hall of Fame. So I'll throw that in too. If we had multi-layered playoffs back in the day – when Casey and Joe McCarthy and Connie Mack and John McGraw and all those right. guys were winning. 27 rings wouldn't be a thing. No, you'd have five, <laughs> you know, if you were lucky. Mm -hmm. Because all those teams would have gotten bounced sometimes. So I just feel like you have to grade it the same way you grade Mike Zanino and say, you know, most of these picks don't happen at all. And the very fact that they made it there is a huge thing. 
So any team that gets to the playoffs had a good season? Is that where you are? Because I think that the biggest argument almost is the, of, of a you know, playoff team that's out saying our season was not a success is the White Sox. Yeah, it's it's harder. I mean, I, I think, though, again, like, I feel like that's also arrogance, right? I mean, I, I don't think the, I think the context changes the expectation somewhat. Like, again, the, the White Sox gave on an aesthetic level, the White Sox gave their fans a lot to look at and did a lot of things correctly. At the same time, as we discussed at the beginning, they were in a division that wasn't really there and they tolerated a lot of stuff that slid as the season went on. So if the the White Sox feel like they failed on their mission, that's that's their definition. Like their angle is not necessarily it doesn't have to be my angle. So I think we, we're different constituencies, right? How you feel in the building may be different from what we can feel, whether as analysts or critics or, or fans or whatever. Um, before we end the statement, a we'll go back to our breaking news. <laughs> Um, a statement from Cardinals GM John. Oh, wait, he's not the GM, but he's the president of baseball. Mm. The top, the, the 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 top of the food chain of baseball front office. Is the head honcho right now, uh, John Mazalak, um, who's a one snappy dresser. Let me tell you that. Said um, after a successful 2021 season, we have determined that we have a philosophical difference in the direction of our major league club is going. We have decided at this time that it is best for us to end our partnership with Mike Schilt. So nothing funky went on. It just. You know, nothing unexpected. There's no sort of, you know, there's no no sort of external kind of factors. It looks like they just did this. I'm trying to think of which manager on getting fired said, sometimes they just get tired of looking at your face. Yeah, for sure. There are, there are managers I think are really good managers, but I also think that they're shelf life short. Like mm. the, the, what they do works really well. Um, but at some point what they do stops resonating. Um, and uh, I think Dusty Baker's one of those managers. Um, Davy Johnson was. Davy Johnson is one of those men. Yeah, and so um, I, I don't have a great sense for Mike Schultz's style outside of games, um, so I'm not sure. But shocking. Um, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We have no guest. <laughs> um, you'll listen to an amazing track from Calhoun Walled City, who we'll talk about in a second. So stick around. <laughs>
Welcome back to the podcast. No guests today. We're just going to go right in the last segment. I'm sorry we have no guests today. I'm not happy about it, but things happen outside of baseball. They're more important than baseball. And, uh, we'll get you a guest next week, I promise. But for now, we start with our musical guest this week, which is one of the finest bands recording today. It's Kowloon Walled City. Um, if you do not know, friend of the podcast and half of Productive Outs, Ian Miller plays bass in Kowloon Walled City. It's one of at last count, 7,293 bands that Ian is in. Uh, but <laughs> Kowloon Walled City is the most prominent and, and maybe the most well-known. Um, this is um, Doom Metal Sludge Rock Supreme. Um, they have toured the world. Uh, they have opened for Neurosis. And this is all, you're listening to tracks from their album that came out this month, last week, called Piecework, which is uh, their first album in some six years uh, it is coming out to glowing reviews. Um, they, it, it is a, um, they have a sound and it is, it is, it is, I think sludge is the best way to describe it. Um, really great lyrics, great moving sound, great driving music as well. Um, but one of the good reviews came from, um, Pitchfork. Uh, the final paragraph reads, uh, piecework comes six years after grievances a break twice as long as any previous interim between albums. The agony of that gap is palpable in the music. Evans and his bandmates sound wearied by the act of creation, like each riff and drum fill is being extracted at the cost of some of their vitality. But even when the music feels emotionally draining, it lurches forward, stumbling towards catharsis, and the stars shine through. I, I can't describe how many better than that. Do you ever want to be a music reviewer? I thought that would be a great job at one point. I've done a little bit of it. It's a lot of fun. And the great thing about it, my, my favorite, and he's been doing it, he's, he's been doing it so long he's called the Dean of Rock Critics, was the, the Village Voice Critic, Robert Kreisgau, Yeah, who is just, it, as a writer, I don't always agree with his takes, which is fine, but as a writer, I really admire him because he, for years, and he still does them online via subscription, these little capsule reviews where he would try to say everything that you would say in a thousand-word review but in like a hundred <laughs> and sometimes they just come off as, as dismissive and, and, and tendentious, but when they work, they're really good and they can be really funny and really insightful. But I wanted to ask you this cause I was not super familiar with Kowloon Wild city and I was looking at their all music page and this was the description that that descript. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the opening paragraph of the description of the band from all music. And it is part of the emerging new wave of noise rock. San Francisco's Kowloon walled city takes the sound pioneered by bands like the Jesus lizard and unsane and push it into new dimensions of heaviness with a style based around detuned, impossibly thick guitars and a bottomless well of anger. The band's crushing sound creates a kind of sonic gravity that pulls listeners in and refuses to let them go until they give in to the furious, fuzz-fueled assault being launched at them. Accurate? I, 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 my, I smiled at the incredible accuracy of the guitars being described as thick. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is very much a, a uh, there is a, a, very, a real density to what they do that I like a lot. I did listen to some, and I think... I don't mean to take anything away from the lyrics or the vocals, but I enjoyed the musicianship that they they <laughs> employed, and I I might have liked it better had it been instrumental rock. Mm. You know, it's it's funny. I I talked about this I think with Eric on a previous episode of podcast. Um, 
uh, about just heavy metal in general and, and the comedian Kyle Kinane, who's great, has a, this great bit about heavy metal fans. So there's kind of two of them. There's the there's the people who are there for the musicianship mm. and they'll stay, you know, five string bass detuned, you know, detuned the second and third string is, you know, that's pretty great. And, and then there's the people who are there for the mythology <laughs> where it's just like, I'm going to ride a pterodactyl, ride a pterodactyl to Valhalla, you know, and it's the second ones you got to worry about. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not sure that I want to identify with a bottomless well of anger. Like, because I don't know that that's healthy for me at this stage. But it's hard life. not to, Stephen. Oh, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> you know, when I was a teenager and things went against me, I might put on a Who record and trash my room. And then at some point I realized I still like the Who very much, but I realized that all that happens when you trash your room is you don't have nice things anymore and you still have to clean it up. So I, I outgrew that and I just I don't want to open that door. But again. you can't appreciate the catharsis in that act? No, I do. I do. Oh, okay. I very I very much do. It's just as an adult it's a little bit embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Especially like it's one thing if you're sixteen and you have no one around but your parents, and it's another if like you have a wife and children observing you in that behavior. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, you're 16, you're supposed to be an asshole. Right, exactly, and and I definitely qualified. Are you ready for emails? I am. Email us. We got a lot of good emails this week, so thank you if you were someone who sent them. And send your emails to chinmusic at fangraphs.com. I promise you I read them all. Our first email is from Pastor Brian. I wonder if Pastor Brian's a real pastor, first of all. He's like Father Mulcahy. He just plays one on MASH. <laughs> pastor Brian writes, Dear Kevin... And what is certainly a wonderful, thoughtful guest host. See, they knew already. Absolutely. The pitching looks okay for next year for the Brewers, but the offense is anemic. We talked about that earlier. Do the Brewers have pieces in their farm system to swing a trade for an impact third baseman right fielder? Do they have anyone in the system that might be ready next year? Stearns has been terrific at finding value in unusual places. Any guesses to what he might do in the trade or free agent market? Does my distraught rambling have any semblance of coherence? Pastor Brian, let me know if you think the Brewer season is a success, first of all, and does the fact that they were fun to watch matter to you? But I, I'm not going to get too much into the Brewer's offseason. Like, I, I honestly haven't really looked at it, but I, I, your email lets me make a, a very important point. Um, and it is to your first question. Do the Brewers have pieces in their farm system to swing a trade for an impact third baseman or right fielder? Let's just change that to impact player. Um I literally just got an email to the podcast about Mike Schill. We'll talk about it next week, Lance. Um, and so, so Pastor Brian, you know, you hear this a lot. Oh, they don't have the pieces to go acquire an impact player. I think every system has the pieces to acquire an impact player with the way prospects have suddenly become valued. And we've talked about this more in July, but, you know, the dynamic has changed from, oh, you can't touch our first prospect to, like, you can't touch our top 10 prospects. And so that has changed the... Um, the supply and demand side of, of, of trades. And if all of a sudden, you know, the brewers made like, you know, they're, they're, they're big prospects. Whoever you think those are, um, you know, uh, Ethan small or, or Garrett Mitchell or, or, or like their first round picks, Sal Freelick or, um, you know, Bryce Terang or, or like the hot young Dominican dude and, and Hedbert Perez, like they would get impact players for those guys because it's so rare for top prospects even in kind of a middle system like the Brewers, to become even available, that I think the price would, would be very high and, and teams would be willing to pay very much. So I actually am not a believer in any sort of like, well, they don't have the pieces they need at the farm to go get something. I think every team does. Even the worst system in baseball, if they made like their, their one guy available, I mean, they'd be right there. And, and they would be able to do things. You, know, you think about a system that you might think it was really bad. Like, uh, I don't know, like the Washington Nationals. If the Washington Nationals made you know Brady House or Cade Cavalli available, 
they'd get impact players for them. And so every team has has the ability to, to acquire impact players for their top prospects, all 30. Um, it's just, and, and a lot of that's because the market has changed so in, incredible in terms of teams willing to trade their prospects that to acquire a team's top prospects suddenly becomes like a really desirable thing because it's such a rare thing. I have two questions here. He singled out third base and right field, and the Brewers actually got quality performances mm-hmm. At both those positions for I mean, but, two but obviously players who are free under, agent. Well, but those players are under contract, right? No, obviously is a free agent at the end of the year, but yeah, Arias is coming back. But Garcia, they have under option, I think. I think he's done, but maybe I'm wrong. Keep talking, 12, and I'll tell you. Twelve million dollar team option, two million dollar buyout. So Avisale's coming back. That's a bargain. Well, but is the implication that the the correspondent, our pastor, is dissatisfied with Urias and Garcia? Because I, I said this the last time I was on. I'm I root for Urias. He's got some selectivity. Nice year. Yeah, he did. I mean, he's he's maybe not your ideal third baseman, although he made some good plays in the postseason, even though it availed them not. And and he he suddenly developed pop that he never had with the Padres. Yeah, and Garcia, like no one's no one's you know thinking of him as, as Juan Soto, but you know, he had 29 bombs at an 820 OPS, the above average player you'd be happy to have in the lineup. He plays a good defensive game. Right. I mean, if you want to ask a question, the question for the Brewers is how do they make Jackie Bradley Jr. get raptured or, or something? Cause that, that was a very first guessable mistake that signed. And boy, did he, I mean, he didn't disappoint me cause I, I didn't think he'd be this bad, but I also didn't think he'd be good. I and, thought he'd be a nice piece for them as like a guy who could, cause you need, you know, you kind of you need four outfielders just because right. everyone's going to need. To, I thought he'd be a really nice piece for him. I thought he, I thought he'd hit like thing, you know two thirty with some pop as opposed to what he hit like one sixty something. If you look at his Red Sox stats, and I know this is not the end all be all, okay, but very consistently throughout the Red Sox years, he did all his hitting at Fenway Park. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like he got a benefit from Fenway Park. It was the he only was, place he hit. It was the only place, and he was this guy on the road. The only difference is that as a Bostonian, he took more walks than he did this year. He just stopped mm, walking right. in this particular year, which led to the 34 OPS plus. Yeah, I mean, the question I think for the the, the Brewers is, well, they you know, first base is, is the big hole. Um, but maybe Ryan Tellez can be you know part of an answer there. I Maybe he, he was very good after they acquired him. His track record is not that he's that good. Um, but it's... it's you know, is is there anything left in the tank for for Yellick and Kane? You know, that's it. Right. Um, you know, a lot of their 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 bad offense is kind of fixed. Like Colton Long's gonna be the second baseman. Willie Adamas, who was great, obviously, is gonna be the shortstop. Um, Urias will probably be at third base. Uh, it, it's you know, guys, they, they don't have a lot of expiring dudes um, among their position players. Right. Um, next email comes from David, and David says. Hello, Kevin. First of all, today's guest is amazing. One of the best discussions I've ever heard. You really hit a home run with, insert name of esteemed guest here. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. Now for the question. Why can't catchers hit? Granted, there have been an amazing offensive catchers in the game, but across the board, they're below average. According to a Ryan Wiet article I read in Fangraphs last year, they had an 85 WRC plus in 2019, and it was 84 in 2018. Now, I know hitting is hard and catching is hard, but here's what I don't understand. Starting catchers catch 15 to 20,000 pitches a year. Add in warm-up pitches, bullpen sessions, their amateur career, and I'm guessing a catcher might have caught around a quarter million pitches by the time he's 25. 
He sits behind the plate for 140 pitches a game. He calls specific pitches. He sees what they look like from the pitcher's hand to his mitt. When he calls a curveball, he's training his brain subconsciously to understand this is what a curveball looks like. And he and he doesn't just have exposure to curveballs from one pitcher. He's probably seen curveballs from all different shapes and sizes and hundreds of different pitchers by the time he's 25. So why are catchers below average at the plate? Like I say, I know hitting is hard, so you'd think they would at least have some slight advantage over players who see pitches of fractions of the time they would. I mean, after seeing scores and thousands of curveballs, you think they'd be able to pick out a curveball spin so much more quickly than hitters who see a fraction of that number while at the plate. There's got to be an advantage to some degree. I know that some humans are just better at hitting baseballs and no amount of exposure to pitches. Even extra time in the batting cage is going to turn Martin Maldonado into Mike Trout. I know that because of the challenging position catcher is defensively, the bar is much lower offensively for players to prove themselves major league worthy. But I've just wondered why the exposure to so many pitches during the career don't make catchers at least average, if not above average hitters. Thanks, David and Teagard. I think Teagard's in Oregon? Don't know. I think that's where that is. Uh, David. Uh, so I, 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 I like your, your, your supposition here. Um, I don't think you would, I, I think guys can hit or they can't hit. I don't think sitting behind home plate and calling pitches and seeing them is going to make anyone a better hitter. Um, I'll get to the physical toll of catching in a second. The one thing though, using your specific example of seeing all these pitches a year is I've always wondered why catchers don't have better plate discipline. I've always wondered why they don't get an advantage out of what they do for their job. Um, in terms of identifying location better and identifying um, pitches better. I think the hitting things is a whole other world. But I've always thought, I've always been confused as why catchers don't have better plate discipline as a whole um, than, than people who are not catchers. Um, like I said, hitting's hard. I don't think that kind of thing helps you hit. And But you really cannot estimate, underestimate the physical toll. Like when you watch the game tonight, um, and and Buster Posey or Will Smith comes up in the seventh inning, they are exhausted. They're so tired. Um and 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 I think that I think I think the physical toll that catchers take, um, it'd actually be interesting. I should I should do the number to see what the catchers hit in the early and, and late. Um I think there would be something there. Maybe that's not an idea for a later time, but um the physical toll of catching and and the, how beat up these guys get during the season. And, you know, by August, your, your catcher is often, you know, dealing with a, a any variety of, of minor maladies that he's playing through. Um, I think the physical toll is why catchers can't hit that well. I love this question. And there there are a couple of things here. And, and the last part that you talked about, I recall Tim McCarver saying, I think in one of his early books, because, I mean, this is a guy who, whatever you thought of him as a broadcaster, he also caught a million games in the major leagues. And he said trying to answer the question, why don't catchers typically hit for great averages? He would say their hands hurt too much, that by the end of the season, you couldn't grip a bat properly because you were just constantly having throbbing at the ends of your arms from all the abuse that you took catching all those fastballs. Like, I mean, I'm sure the mitt does quite a bit to, to protect your hand, and I'm sure that mitt technology has evolved since McCarver's day, but there still is a lot of abuse that that those guys take. So, so there is that aspect to it. But I do think that David and Teagard is onto something. And I asked Rod Carew about this, about the intersection of memory and hitting when it comes to pitch recognition, because I do think that the best hitters have maybe a slightly better ability to access 
the memory of Mm -hmm. what pitch shapes look like and that when they do see because obviously you know this remember that they have a a fraction of a second or, or a second or so to decide whether to swing or not they have the ability to see that pitcher's hand come up and see from the the kind of shape that's emerging what the pitch is going to be and then lay off of it or swing or or adjust their swing or whatever. And I think that your really good hitters have access to that library of images and are able to translate that into reflexes a little quickly. It's all subliminal. I'm not saying it's it's conscious. It's it's just a mind-body process that they're a little good at or better at. And conversely, when you you watch a game and you get frustrated saying, why did that guy swing at that slider low and away again? Mm. Like, why can't he recognize it and lay off of it? I don't know if it's it's like an IQ thing. I don't think he's smarter or dumber no. than that, that other hitter. He just doesn't quite have the same, like, access to the hard drive. And so I think that David is on to something. I just, I think, first of all, that that catching may not stimulate that process exactly the same way and that it's it's determined by something else which is not only the ability to have the recognition but translate it to action and in terms of of your your quick twitch reflexes and that brings us to another part and i know you can talk about this very intelligently which is that teams are selecting for skills with catchers that may have nothing to do with hitting and then getting around to the hitting part later. So in in some senses, some of the guys who a team will look at and say, that guy's a backstop, then they, 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 they're not thinking about his offensive ability at that point. They're, t- they're thinking about his receiving and throwing ability. Yeah, and it, it means a lot. It, it's, it's, you know, and again, you, you mentioned in the email, um, Martin Maldonado is a perfect example. And Martin Maldonado is not the right catcher for a lot of teams. He's the, the absolutely perfect catcher for the Ashes because you can afford to hide the bat. Because as we talked about earlier, the other eight guys can destroy you in the lineup. And so you can you can live with Martin Maldonado doing what he does at the plate, which is Martin's strong as an ox and has you know plus or better raw power. And so he's going to run into like 12 to 15 a year. And that's, that's going to be his offensive value. Um, but what he does in terms of, of working with pitchers and game management is worth in my opinion, multiple wins a year in, in ways that we can't necessarily measure in a, on a, on a, in a war level. Um, yeah, and absolutely. so that's super valuable. That, that's, you know, that's, and you just go, I, there are teams who's like, just give me a good defensive catcher and we'll get our offense elsewhere. Cause the, the position is that important and that impactful. And there are teams who would rather have a 60, 70 defender who it's like Martin Maldonado than a, a plus bat who's a 40 catcher. I, I will say this. I mean, having seen a lot of Gary Sanchez over the years, yeah, I appreciate Martin Maldonado. Yeah, and I, I honestly think one of the Yankees' biggest problems is the fact that Gary Sanchez is their catcher, and Gary Sanchez should be a DH. Um, that, that's absolutely right. And you know, we, you and I have had this discussion, but um, getting away from any sort of cheating aspect of the 2017 Astros, the reason the Astros won the 2017 American League Championship Series is because Gary Sanchez can't catch a baseball. Yep. There were two game-ending plays at the plate where the ball beat the runner, and Gary Sanchez did not catch the baseball. And the advance report said, send him every time because Gary Sanchez can't catch a baseball. I, I've i been watching baseball a long, long time, and he may be the worst regular defensive catcher I've ever seen. He should just be a DH. And I wonder if he'd hit better. You'd think. You know. Um, okay. We're going to get heavy here, Steven. you got to help me through this one. <laughs> All right. Next email comes from Dave. Dave says, with the Astros having historically good offense this year and the success of international players who were signed during your tenure with the team, I wondered, 
Does their possible imminent success yet again this season give you joy or sadness? I'm aware that you may be tired of discussing your time with the team and you may not care to answer on the podcast, but I couldn't help but wonder when listening to the game yesterday, I wonder how Kevin feels about this team. Um, I want to address first the part that says, I'm aware that you may be tired of discussing your time with the team and you may not care to answer on the podcast. Um, I get this a lot. And there are times where I talk to people that I know and people that I like and even people in the media and I can tell that they don't want to address the elephant in the room, which is that I worked for the Astros. Um, and it's, it's, it's bothersome. And I, first of all, I want everyone to know I'm happy to talk about my time with the Astros and I'm happy to talk about uh, the Astros, both good and bad. And I have, I think strong feelings about both good and bad. Um, and it's not, and, and there are people I know well, who I can think of friends like, so and I can just see it happening and I don't do anything about it because I don't want to make it uncomfortable, but like it's, it upsets me that they're uncomfortable because I'm not, um, I'm happy to talk about it. It's not a thing for me. I don't, I, I wrote this when I came back to fan graphs, like I don't want it to define me, but I'm absolutely not running away from it. Um, I'm, I'm happy to discuss it. If you want to send emails to the podcast and ask about Astro stuff, I'll talk about it. Like I'm happy to do it. It's not something, it makes me upset that people, I can see the gears grinding and how they don't want to get into it. And like, they don't want to address what for them is an elephant in the room. And for me, it's just, it's something that happened that, you know, I've mostly processed and I'm happy to deal with. Um, and so that's not a problem. Um, to your question about how I feel about this team, um, it's complicated. Um, I am not rooting for them. Um, I, you know, it's, I was fired last year. I, didn't get a reason and i know the i think i know the reason i obviously i wasn't told but i think i know the reason i don't think it was a good reason that said I, they have every right to fire me um you know especially with a, a new gm coming in and, and an opportunity to kind of get rid of the the, the inner circle because he already had two of them gone um i understand it and again every right to i didn't agree with it and so like do, do you root for the company that fired you for reasons you don't like probably not um that said i do take pride in how good that lineup is and, and the role I played in creating that roster. And, um, but yeah, I don't, I, I'm not rooting for them as kind of a, as a corporation. There are players that I'm rooting for and like, I'm about to say things that make me, you say, Hey, fuck that guy. And I'm never listening to this podcast again. <laughs> but like, um, like I, I root for Carlos Correa. I like Carlos Correa. Um, I root for Yuli Gurriel. I like Yuli Gurriel. Um, I spoke to AJ Hinch, um, within this calendar month in the last 14 days. Um, and I, you know, I'm not taking away from anything AJ did and, and what AJ did was, was wrong. And, and he knows that. And, but I like AJ, I consider AJ Hinch a friend of mine and, and I'm glad he's my friend. Um, and you know, I understand, you know, Twitter is not the real world. Um, and you know, the, it's not as black and white and it's not that every, you know, you're, you're either not, you're either the, the perfect person or you're a monster and, and the world's not like that. Um, I don't necessarily excuse what some of these people did, um, but I can forgive it. And, and, you know, I had a personal relate and I still have a personal relationship with AJ who's always very good to, you know, both me and my family. And, and that matters a lot to me. And, and so, and I know how AJ feels about what happened. And, and I, I think those feelings are genuine. Um, I know how Carlos feels about what happened. And, you know, I know you see, and it's understandably, 
you, know, you might get upset about the way the Astros deal with the story when it comes up again. Um, but if that's what they're drive, using to help, you know, drive their effort to be better, I think that's fine. Um, but it's, it's a, it, it's, you know, it's still kind of, it is a complicated thing. I do take pride in how good this team is, but um, just based on how my time with them ended, um, I kind of don't root for them as a corporation, if that makes sense. It makes total sense to me. And I've had that experience in my life too. And I, I was thinking back to one of my first jobs out of college where I had, this won't surprise you, just a very dramatic blowout with the owner of the company. <laughs> and I, I left, but I still had many friends there. And I would talk to those people and they would say, oh, well, Bob, the guy I had the falling out with, just made a great deal for the company. And, you know, now now we get free cookies every day. And I would say, fuck that guy. Yeah. And and the friends would say, well, why can't you just be happy for us? And I would say, it's like I, I jumped off a ship and the ship went on without me. And I still love the crew of the ship, but I hate the fucking ship. And maybe that's not the most becoming look all the time, but it's hard to be. It's your, a, pers it's your personal experience. Yeah. That's, that's the most important one. And it's, it's, it's. You know, and I can't, look, I mean, the Astros, I, they cheated. Like, they did what they did. I don't know what the impact was, and I don't excuse it at all. And it upsets me, and it, it embarrasses me, And even though I had nothing to do with it. I've told, you know, people, like, where's your ring? My ring's in a, in a safe deposit box in a bank. I haven't looked at it for a long time. And, and that sucks. Just coincidentally right now, I'm reading a book, among the books I'm reading, it's called Press Reset, and it's by Jason Schreier, and it's about films oh, sure. yeah. in the video game industry. Yeah. And just last night, I got to the chapter about Kurt Schilling and 38 Studios. Everything is baseball. Baseball is everything. We always get back there. And I kind of felt for the people who worked for that company were not Kurt Schilling, right? And were invested in the game and the success of the company in their Kingdoms jobs. of Amalur. Yeah, Kingdoms yeah. of Amalur and really put their heart into it. But now if they are to say to somebody, yeah, I was with 38 Studios – you know, some people are going to say, oh, you work for that fascist pitcher guy, that that Trump supporting pitcher guy, and you helped steal seventy five million dollars from the state of Rhode Island. How do you feel about that? They didn't do that stuff. They didn't tweet what Kurt Schilling tweeted, and they didn't have anything to do with negotiating the money. They just showed up for work every day and did what they could do. And that stuff may have been happening down the hall, but that doesn't mean they should be implicated in it. Yeah, and it's it's. I was taking a drink there. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, no, it's it's it's. So yeah, it's it's a weird thing. I do have mixed emotions when I watch the Astros. Um, there are, and again, I, I, I I'm comfortable rooting for some players. Um, when Correa hit the big double um, in Game Four, I smiled because I was happy for Carlos. Um, I, I genuinely like Carlos, um, but yeah, as a, I, I don't want them to win the World Series. I, I, hope I, that, I hope that makes sense. And I hope, you know, I don't even hope I don't, you know, to, to quote the, 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 the late great Kevin Meany, I don't care. I don't, <laughs> like what I, there are people out there that still hate me. I, that's whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's how I feel. I, it's not, I think I'm, I, you know, I don't think it should be a black and white issue for anyone, but I think for someone kind of that personally close to it, it's just impossible for it to be a black and white issue. Um, you know, I know some of these people, um, literally know them and and that makes it different whether that you you know whether you like that or not do you ever like read like a a letter to a, a like relationship advice column and it's like my best friend married my ex 
mm-hmm. and they want me to be happy for them, but I can't be. And like, that's a, a real thing. And you, you'd think that you could be the better man and say, well, that has nothing to do with me, right? We broke up. It's like a, a separation thing. But yeah, when it goes on in your face, it's a little harder. Like, like certainly you and I have, have exes that we haven't talked to in 20 years because who talks to their high school girlfriend, assuming you, you didn't marry them. But you, you know that they've gone on and they've had kids and they've had lives and it has nothing to do with you. And mm. do you do you begrudge them that success or that happiness that they had just because at some point you had experience with them? No, of, of course not. But if it's right in front of you, if it's it's happening and people are saying, no, you have to be happy for them. You have to be the bigger man. It's not realistic. It's too raw. It's too painful. And maybe this, you know, for you, for anybody is a function of time and distance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe by the time Carlos Correa Jr. is on the Astros, you can be philosophical about it. But I don't think it's fair to expect you to be philosophical now. I try to be, though. Well, no, you're making a great effort. I think, I know, I'm, I, that's, I guess maybe I should, like, I'm totally fine with how I feel about it. Right, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't, I don't sit there and go, well, yeah, maybe in time I'll be, I'll feel different about. It. I feel I'm fine with how I feel about it. I kind of don't apologize what I feel about it, but I, I guess, yeah, I did have a really interesting and confusing for me exchange recently for someone who I wanted to have on the podcast, and they said, like, how do you, how do you want to approach the Astros part of this? And I was like, I'm just kind of surprised you asked that. Like, I don't, it's not a thing for me. Like it's honest. It's, it's not a thing for me in the sense that I'm not uncomfortable talking about it. And I'm, and I'm upset that, that you and clearly many others are. And like, you know, seeing it, you know, even in this email, like I'm aware that you may be tired of discussing your time with the team and you might not get an answer on the podcast. Like I'm fine with it. Like ask away. Like seriously, we I send questions to the, I'll happy to talk about it if you, if you things you're interested in there, there are stories to be told. Um, and I am here for it. Um, and I'm comfortable talking about it. And I think that's, you know, the other, that's the thing that's important. I, 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 I sleep well at night about like what I did for the Astros. Um, which is why I can, like I said, it's still kind of, you know, when I see that lineup, I do take a little bit of pride in it. You know, I, I, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I was a big part of the, the, the Alvarez acquisition. I think I was a big part of the Guriel acquisition. Um, so there are, there are pieces there that I you know, definitely take personal pride in. For those who don't know Kevin really well, and I think I've known you, what, you're 20, in a, you're 20 in a years? good spot. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years now, right? Yeah, Something like for that? for sure, yeah. He's, uh, he's a hard guy to offend in, in terms of just general conversation. I know I've managed to piss you off a time or two, but mostly not. And uh, and for me, that's an accomplishment because uh, I, I piss many people off. But no, you can be very blunt with Kevin Goldstein, and and as he just did, Kevin will tell you how he feels. There's there's not a lot of uh, of facade to Kevin Goldstein. That's oh, very kind of you. Um, we have one more email, and this is from Jack. And Jack says, "Hey, Kevin, love the show. I had two questions. Number one, what is the off season plan for the show? And two. What do first and third base coaches do when it's not game time? Let's start with the first question. Uh, what's going to have offseason plan for the show? There's no changes. Um, the show is going to happen. Uh, we'll record on Thursdays. We'll come out on Friday. I plan on doing it every week. Um, long term, um, my plan is to develop a Patreon for the podcast and ask you for money. Not going to lie. <laughs> um, and, and, but, but make it worth your while with, you know, a, 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 
a podcast in the model of, say, um, two that I know of, uh, Chapo Trap House and QAnon Anonymous, where it is like there is still this free show every Friday that you can just get. And if you are a Patreon person, there's an extra show every week as well. Um, so that is my thought right now. Um, and my timing is that might start once we know what's going to happen with the CBA. Um, so once we have a new labor agreement, that is probably around the time that will start. That is how I am viewing it right now. Um, the show during the offseason, there's still a lot of baseball going on. I'm sure we'll, we'll, there'll be a lot of Eric Longenhagen contact talking about prospect lists, things going on in the winter. Hopefully we will have an offseason to talk about in terms of transactions. Um, and if not, we will have labor issues to talk about. Uh, at the same time, like obviously with fewer games, there's less baseball to talk about. And, um, you know, I want to have guests on that are not baseball. We had, you know, did that in the, if you were, if you're an old person who listened to the previous version of the podcast, um, that was a thing. And, and there are people who I want to have on. I have lots of friends in the music world. I have friends in the film world. I have, um, a friend who is a highly successful professional poker player who I think would be fun, uh, a linguistic anthropologist who might come on. Um, you know, so having, you know, some, there would definitely be some non-baseball guests as well, but the podcast is is not changing anything in terms of its release schedule. You will still get a podcast every Friday all the time. Will the Patreon episodes be full episodes or mini episodes? TBD. Okay. Um, I think there'll be a little shorter um maybe not maybe not as guest intensive um and there'll be all sorts of you know we'll be able to like you know when, when shit goes down we'll do a podcast and kick it out um uh, maybe you know more in-depth interviews maybe like i guess we just talked about that guest and that guest experience um i don't know yet see now if, if i were as smart as you are i would do that i would record an extra 10 minutes with guests and then set that aside. Yeah. I never thought of that. I, I struggle to get my show out each week. So I write for our Patreon subscribers. I write about dead players. And they seem to enjoy that. And I, I'm glad to do it. But I struggle to get the show out on time every week and, and barely do it if I do do it. So the idea of doing another show that is more than about three minutes long fills me with terror. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's i i have to say this um the plan was not to have a revolving co-host here mm. the plan was to like try some people out and maybe something would stick and i've just enjoyed the revolving co-host here so much that i haven't changed it right um not that i, that I haven't stuck in there aren't, i've actually found plenty of people i'd be thrilled to do a show every week with um <clears throat> but i've kind of liked the revolving co-host here so much um and i, I i'm just kind of really happy to report that um, I've only had one person turn me down for the revolving co-host here. Huh. Um, every guest, I've never had a guest say I can't come on. I, I can't come on. Um, you know, I've certainly had guests have scheduling issues, but I never had a guest say I can't. And so that's you know, my hit rate's been way better than I thought it would be. Um, and I'm thrilled to say that, and it's been great. And and I I I don't know if there's an end to the revolving co-host here either. Um, I really enjoyed it, and and you know, and obviously we've come back around. You know, we, I don't know. 150 different people to, to do this um so you know we've had some repeats and we'll have more repeats down the road i think you know there are people eric's been great you know, ben clemens has been great jay jaffe's been great you've been great you know i've had joe sheehan a couple of times like I, the, 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 i'm happy to revolve the coast here for now i i so you know if that's a question as well it wasn't the intention but it, it's kind of where it's ending up and you you kind of roll with what feels right and that's what feels right right now one of the great lines in baseball history was dan quisenberry 
who said, I found a design in my flaw. And, uh, or I should say, I found a delivery in my flaw. And that, that is a, a great example of, of adapt, adaptability. You, as you said, you roll with what works. Right. Um, let's get to your baseball question before we stop this, which is what do first and third base coaches do when it's not game time? Yeah, the, the third base coach job isn't simply to stand at third base and be a windmill for three hours a, a, a night. They have, <laughs> they have other things to do. It kind of depends on what they are and what their expertise is. I can, you know, I can speak to the team I was close with. Um, for most of my time with the Astros, Gary Pettis was the third base coach, um, who is a wonderful person. I'm really glad he's back with the team right now. Um, and uh, I made Gary's day. I once went up to Gary. I said, just so you know, you're the best defensive outfit I've ever seen. <laughs> and and I, he was smiling for a week about that. But um, when when not being a human windmill at third base, um, Gary was uh, coaching defense outfield defense. Um, and I can't think of anyone more qualified for that. Um and other, you know, other guys are also infield coaches. Other guys are also um, maybe uh, assisting with game strategy. They all have roles um, based on their area of expertise. You know, they, they have, you know, input on, on, on what's going to happen in the game before the game. Um, you know, they're sitting in on, on very, very long meetings before each series uh, and giving um, and, and, you know, utilizing their, their vast experience in baseball intelligence to assist in game planning and strategy and things like that. And they also tend to all have some kind of, of area of expertise where they can coach, be it outfield, infield, um, you know, helping with the hitting coach or the pitching coach, most smart pitchers, but you know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, they have other roles. They've, they've, you know, more kind of traditional baseball coaching roles uh, as well as game strategy roles beyond just kind of standing in the box and, and being at first base and going, Hey, watch this guy's move. You know, I, yeah, that's, that's, that's just a small part of it really. And they organize the team trips to art museums before games on in visiting <laughs> cities. Now, I have a question about this. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but about a year and a half ago, I had a guest on The Infinite Inning, Brad Baluchian, who wrote a book called The Wax Pack. And mm -hmm. the idea of The Wax Pack was that he was going to buy, I forget what year it was from, somewhere in the 80s, an unopened tops pack. And he was going to rip the pack, and then he was going to go talk to whoever was in the pack. Oh, that's great. And uh, the the book, you know, he had some mixed results. He had some really good conversations from with guys from back then who really opened up about their personal lives, especially since baseball. Things like marriages and divorces and tragedies that they've been through. Randy Reddy is in the book. Mm. Um, you might recall that he lost his wife in a really tragic health accident. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Yeager, guys like that. There were, though, a few guys who wouldn't talk to him. And among them, I recall Richie Hebner, Carlton Fisk, who's just famous for not talking, and Gary Pettis, who I believe was healthy at the time and was with the Astros, just did not want to be interviewed for the book. That's not surprising. Gary didn't. I know Gary didn't deal with the media much and, and didn't like them. I think he had some sort of um, historical reason for distrust, um, whether it was legitimate or not. But I think he did have. I think he got burned at some point. Hmm. Um, and, and did have a distrust with him and didn't like talking to him. It's too bad because, as you said, really fun player. Really fun player. Like, like you know, one of, honestly, like, was an 80 center fielder um, and a guy who um, supplemented a low batting average with a lot of walks and he could steal 50 a year. Right. Um, it's funny. Um, oh, it always kind of um, jarred me. Uh, I remember, um, so Gary's brother is, is Stacy Pettis. Right. Who On, what, on one of his baseball cards. Uh, yeah, exactly. And Stacy played in the minors for a while, never got to the big leagues. But Stacy was the more Stacy was a much higher draft pick um, than Gary. Um, and I was talking to Stacy once, and I just kind of gave him shit. I said, "Yeah, Gary, I played you. What the hell happened?" <laughs> and and he got kind of serious about it. And he said, "He said Gary worked way harder than I did." Um, and it always kind of struck me. 
Um, but yeah, you know, Kerry's was a was a, a, a damn good player. Um, I four or five gold gloves. Yeah, just sort of a toothpick of a guy mm-hmm. with zero percent body fat, and just could run like the wind. He he never quite got the hitting thing down, but it it didn't matter that much. Yeah, and someone who's a, a more well rounded sports fan than me would be able to tell you about his son who played in the NFL. Oh, that makes um, total sense. Yeah, so that was a a huge um, uh, kick returner. Right. That, that again. That was exactly what I pictured. Um. Okay, so that's it for the emails. If you want to send more emails, and again, I don't. You write about. You can try to talk to me about anything. It's fangrass at chinmusic Send the. It's time to catch up with Stephen Goldman. Steve, what's up? I had been so busy with playoff stuff that I haven't been been doing much, and I I don't mean to to. Well, you asked me earlier. Do you watch every inning? I try to watch most of them. I admit that my attention drifts sometimes. Sure. If if I'm at a game, I try to be hyper focused. You know, back when I was young, my dad took me not to a baseball game, but to the first football game, NFL game I ever went to. OJ Simpson played in this game. That's how long ago it was. And I'm not sure how old I was, but my dad got on me because I think I spent the entire game watching the scoreboard. Like they they had a better, more up to date scoreboard in in uh, whoever I think it was the Giants were were playing at that time than say the Yankees did, which you know it seemed to date from like 1960. It was like the 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 digital equivalent of a dot matrix printer or something that right. that they had back then. And I don't think I saw that much of the game just because the 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 lights and the sounds were so distracting. And I always kind of remembered that. And I try to remember when I'm at the park that as much as I'm trying to, to have fun, I also kind of have a job to do. I really want to see this. You know, I really want to experience this. At home, it's much, much harder, yeah. es- especially because, and we don't have to do this. It's so played out, right? But certain announcers... Certain color guys, uh, you can guess who I'm talking about, caused mm-hmm. me to want to rend my garments. And the thing is, once you mute it, you know, then you start losing the rhythm of it. Right. No, I agree with you. People are like, oh, just turn it down. But that's the problem with that. I totally agree with you. So it, it gets so. And, and you know, I'm not the only person here. And, you know, it's easy to pick up your phone. And then the next thing you know, a mm-hmm. half inning, a half inning has gone by. Yeah. And, you're like, oh, why is there a guy in second? <laughs> right. Right. Which is also the experience of listening to a Yankees game called by John Sterling. Why is there a guy on second? He never mentioned that before. He just appeared there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's funny. I, I, it's a quick tip for you kids. Um, if you stream your games on Apple TV, you can pick alternate audio and go to the home or away team's radio synced up yes. with the game which I always do. And the fact that that is not a feature on the iPad, I find incredibly upsetting. So if you work for Major League Baseball, Advanced Media, and you've developed the iPad app, please allow us to use alternate audio. You know what bugged me is I do do that a lot. I, I listen to the alternate audio, and I was listening to Charlie Steiner's call of one of the Dodgers-Giants games the other yeah. day. Yeah. And so I'm catching all these ads that I don't hear in my area. Oh, they're, yeah, They're great. local local Los Angeles area ads. And it was for like a used car dealership. Come down to... John's used car a lot because we'll get you the best deal. And then a celebrity voice pops on to say, I got my car there and it's great. Go there. And it was Tommy Lasorda. And I was like, he's dead. He can't chill for your car. They're not letting him go. Let he's, Tommy he's, rest. He's still got his car there. <laughs> he did, but he can't take it with him. At least I don't think, unless they buried him in it. I have a much bigger question, which is, did Tommy Lasorda really buy a used car? <laughs> 
I might be slagging them off. Maybe it was a new, a new, he bought a Prius. Can you see Tommy Lacerda in a Prius? No. I'm sure you had this experience at the winter meetings, but I used to run into him at the winter meetings. Sure, of course. And by the time I did, he was like 110 and about four feet tall and about four feet wide. And it was like, why did Yoda just walk by me? What was that? And, and it was neat to see him, but it was also very strange. I had a four-year run at the winter meetings as someone who used to smoke cigarettes. I had a four-year run where I either had a cigarette with Jim Leland or Ron Washington. <laughs> Are you excited about Ron Washington maybe coming back? I am. I mean, as a manager, I realize he's with the Braves right now. Yeah, what a list for the Padres, like filled with old dudes. But I, yeah, I, Wash is great, and I think Wash deserves another chance. Absolutely. All for it. That's cool. Me too. I think, yeah, I think Wash is great. I think Wash could be a good manager. And I think the reason he was no longer a manager were, were not necessarily right. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm, if he gets another chance, I'm going to be super happy about that. He was a player who, because my awareness of, of baseball in kind of an adult way started when I was about 13, it happened that he hit 300 that year. And it was just a small sample fluke that he was not capable of, of before or after. But it took me like 10 years to think, Ron Washington, not a great player. He was no. he was he was a utility infielder who could not field, which is always a bad skill combination. It's incredibly hard. I don't know if you're aware of this, but yeah, <laughs> fielding in the infield incredibly hard. Um, you know, this is kind of related to the last question we had about the offseason plan for the show. Um, you know, you're a writer about baseball, and and you know, I know you you. I don't know. I would call you a baseball historian. I hope you're not offended by that. No. Um, and you know, you spend a lot of time kind of talking about baseball history and using it to maybe uh, contextually understand baseball present. Yes. And, um, and our general present and our general present. So the general present isn't going to change, but there's a strong chance that we have a weird winter with no transactions and things like that. Um, like how are you planning for that? Or, or are you just saying, well, if there's uh, you know, if there's labor strife, we have historical labor strife. We can learn from to let us better understand what is going to be the current labor strife. Well, if you're talking about me personally, I have I'm some talking about, I'm about only that. talking about you personally. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that at Fangraphs, you guys have had conversations just as we at BP have about, well, what do we do in that worst case scenario? You know, do we start a knitting column? A knitting column is something we've always wanted I'm to gonna, do. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be previewing the next sumo basho if there's like a, <laughs> you know, if we have labor. Right? Yeah. There's only so much you can do, unfortunately. And and we've all been through this before, and, and we know it's it's harrowing, and, and you do have to pivot to labor stuff. I mean, like you, as you were just discussing with this show, I do mix in the odd non-baseball guest, and I, I have a lot of different interests, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk about those things, and, and my audience has been really good about coming along. So we do talk about films sometimes. Uh, I have a book from a couple of authors on climate change that I'm reading right now that hopefully I'll be recording those guests soon. But to just to get into the baseballness of that, for example, I was intrigued because this book is about sort of the effects of, of sea level rise. And I thought, you know, the A's want to build their new park in, in a place that will be out to sea in five years. <laughs> and and that's actually priced in, if you look at, at and, and I don't know, it, it seems to be going downhill right now, those negotiations. But right. part, part of the cost of that new ballpark is to mitigate against potential sea level rise. So they're thinking about it too. Like they, they're going to build it in such a way that when the waters come lapping in that they're not flooding right field every day. So like the, there are ways to, to be a baseball 
analyst and, and, and do a baseball show without there necessarily being baseball. And yeah, in my case, I mean, fortunately, I can always look back and say, oh, you know, we we have labor strife. This is like 81 or this is like the Players Alliance in the 1880s, for that matter. And like find find ways to say, hey, you know, we've we've been through this before. History does tend to repeat a little bit just in different costumes. The thing that that I worry about is that the longer baseball is away. And I know we saw this in 94 and 95. It's like anything else, like you get distant from it. And you people start to lose interest in general. They move on to other things. And I, I kind of wonder about this sometimes in my sleepless, nervous nights, sort of like, well, well, what if there is a time when none of these stories have relevance because people are, are thinking about curling, you know? And I, I mean, it's it, I like curling. I'm not disrespecting curling. I just don't know if I'm set up to tell curling stories. Right. And, and a problem with, you know, even obviously if there is, obviously when i'm not even say if anymore obviously when there's labor strife this offseason there also is like yes of course you're going to write about it because that's base that's what's happening right. in baseball right now but you 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 know when you write about baseball there's there's games every night there's things are happening things are changing there's moments to talk about if okay i'm I gotta catch myself now when <laughs> the cba contract expires on december 1st they might not talk for five weeks after that you will have nothing to talk about. You're not going to have new information to report on, um, or to or to give an opinion on, because they, they're just I, they're not going to talk for a few weeks after once there's a lockout. Well, and so we've, and we've... so kind of the, the the you know the 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 organic aspect of the story is static. But I think that happens anyway, right? In a normal year, so the last ball of the World Series is out or is caught, and. Now what? Well, the Mets still need a third baseman, and they needed one in the month before as the playoffs were going on. <laughs> right, right, right. And right. They, they're not likely to get one on October 31st or November 1st. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that's really cool. But we're going to go through November and Thanksgiving and still be saying, well, what if they get a third baseman? Who would they get? Do they re-sign Jonathan VR or do they upgrade? And we can keep doing that right through the winter meetings in a normal off season. So the, the only difference is it might be a bit extended and we might still be saying that in like February when, like, oh, they signed it. I'm hoping like they, they signed a new CBA. Now everything's rushed. And, and now all these free agents have to get sorted out. Right. They're going to be overwhelmed. Right. I think, yeah, then, then we'll have too much. Um, And so, and so uh, what do you, you're still writing and a consulting detective at baseball perspective, <laughs> baseball prospectus. Yes. How are things going there? It's really great. I feel like I say this every time we're on, but there's such a wonderful group of guys. And I I alluded to this before. Hasn't always been the case. Mm-hmm. And uh and you know, you were around for all of that. It used to be a very contentious group and and at this point that was many generations ago. Um and I have to remind myself of that all the time because you know, Craig Goldstein might say to me, "You know, I don't like this paragraph that you wrote." And I'll be like reacting as if he's Nate Silver, in which case it would have been like a three-week ordeal. And uh, no, it's just a thing that he said. Oh, okay, I'll fix it, Craig. Not a problem. No right. reason to get upset. No weeping. No gnashing mm-hmm. of teeth. Mm-hmm. But my my internal reaction is to like curl up in a fetal position because I still have that much PTSD over that. And they're not like that now. They're just nice guys who want to put out cool stuff. Right. I, I've, I've, I, I've always, and maybe this is wrong, um, 
but I've never had a problem with editors. I've always felt like I've written my piece. I've given it to the editor now and they can do whatever the hell they want. Well, you, you've always been terrific about that kind of stuff. And you always said, Steve, you're here to make me look smarter. I mean, yes, I, I, don't, and both, I don't mean. And, and both, both Meg and, and John Taylor do that for me here. Right. And, and I'm not trying to say, by the way, that you were like turning in garbage and then saying, Steve, make me look smarter. It was the <laughs> other way. You were, you were turning in good stuff. And I would say, hey, I see a place where we could maybe plus this up with a better phrase or more information. And you were always really good about, it. I think there were a few times you were like, no, I don't really want to say that, but that that's your, your prerogative as a writer. But that that's like when the collaborative process is like that, when there's no ego in it and it's just two people trying to get the best possible work of art. And it is art in a way to get it out there so that the reader really has qual a quality experience, enjoyment. They come away smarter than they were before. I love that. Writers who are insecure and are like, how dare you tamper with my prose? I am Bill Shakespeare. Like those, those people suck. And it, it leads to a worse publication. And hopefully you can defenestrate those people as soon as possible. But um, and, and by the way, I don't mean to make Nate Silver sound like a terrible guy. I had I had some fun with Nate too. Nate, <laughs> sure. You know, I mean the, the the problem the thing about about BP in those days is that everyone it was a group of like really intense personalities, super intense personalities that had should not have been together, and they also all had or many of them had a and I include you in this like in any given crowd that they might have been in as individuals might have been the smartest person in the room. And when you put like 10 people like that together, mm -hmm. they tend to have ego problems. Right. Um, and if you're listening to this and you've read my stuff, it's not art. Steven is, a, is <laughs> Stephen Golden's a much better writer than I am. But That's the pro even, even, well, thank you. But I mean, even if the, the actual output is not art, the process is art. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm very, no, I don't. <laughs> I, see, I see writing is, I see writing is very mechanical to be honest with you. I'm very romantic about this. Like, all right, I, I will, this is, but again, a, you're a much better writer than I am. Um, I think you're a far more thoughtful writer than I am. You know what? It's well, the thing is, it's like, I, I think there are certain things I do well, humbly. There are also many writers who make me wonder why I ever thought I could pick up a pen. Yeah, and David like, Roth that, does that every time I read David. David is amazing. Yeah. You know, and, I'm like, and what Dave, am I doing with my life? I'm wasting my time here. He tweets better than anybody. Like, <laughs> and I, and that this is the thing, like, I can, I, and, and David's a, a good friend of mine. Like I can have lunch with David. I can hold my own in a conversation with David. I can make David laugh. And that feels like an accomplishment, you know, like, like I'm, I'm, I don't feel that I'm an inferior specimen to David and knowing David, he has the same foibles and concerns and insecurities that all of us do. But there's something that happens when he writes that there's a cognitive process, mm -hmm. kind of kind of like that Rod Carew thing I was talking about. He has access to doing it a slightly different way. And that's that's wonderful. And when I'm right, I can do some of that, but in a different way. And it's such a good feeling to to be able to do that. I, I really am romantic about writing. I love it so much, but I'm not always in that sweet spot. He's in it more often, always. So if someone said you could only write or only podcast, you would write. Well, so, I mean, since since my podcast has two halves to it, right? It has a conversation part because obviously I enjoy talking. I enjoy hearing my own voice. 
and I enjoy writing. So I do a little bit of both, right? I write, I write a very detailed outline and then try to improvise around it. So it doesn't sound like I'm reading because that, that feels boring, um, at least to me. So what I, I do is I, I just write it and I try to discover it as I say it into the microphone so that it's sort of spontaneous for both me and, and the listener. It would be very hard for me to give up either at this point. Um, because I just I just love being the immediacy of being on this microphone mm-hmm. and being able to talk to people. But there's something about me and writing that is elemental to my personality. And I, I'm saying when I was six and people said, what are you going to do when you grow up, Stevie? I'd say, I want to write. And I don't think I knew what it meant exactly. <laughs> but it's like... And and the odd thing was that there throughout my life as I was growing up, there were many people who would come up to me and it could be friends, it could be um, acquaintances in school, it could be teachers who would say like, when you grow up, you're going to write, right? Like they just knew that about me. So it, I got picked somehow. And I don't exactly, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings about how it's gone and, and there are things that I am not good at in terms of self-promotion and networking and things like that, that would have made it better or more, you know, easier to reach a, a larger audience. But it, it's part of me. And there there are times that I burn out on it and I go away for a while. But after about a week, I jones for it. I just really want to put words on paper. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't pause. I would just have all this podcast every day. <laughs> I, I think I talk much better than I write. Well, it, it's a kind of writing, and you need to be fast on your feet, and that's a a good quality, a, a good challenge too. And I think when podcasting goes really well, like you're, if you're not alone on the microphone, you're always talking to somebody else. Like you, said I can't something. go solo. Yeah, I, I thought about that one time. I just there's no way I could do that. It's hard. It's hard to play off of. Right. Exactly. And that, but that too is a skill. It's why Abbott and Costello were something, but Abbott, <laughs> when he tried, <laughs> right. they both tried, was, was it not, yeah. it didn't, it didn't work. They were a thing. Right. Exactly. They, they had to be together. And yeah, you know what it's like? I, this is a very personal thing, but I'll tell you, I, I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe you'll make fun of this, but you've, have you ever seen the, the old Disney movie Fantasia? Of course. Okay, so there's there's the Mickey Mouse Sorcerer's Apprentice thing. Mm-hmm. And he gets the magical cap, and he dreams that he's the master of the universe. And he's standing on top of a cliff, and he's conducting the stars and the water, and they're each responding to his commands. He lifts one four-fingered paw, whatever it is, and the waves crash around him, and he lifts another, and a comet goes by. When you're creating words, and it could be fiction or nonfiction, but it's really working always thought that that's what it feels like that you have the magic cap on and you are able to command all these things and pull them out of the air and coalesce them in front of you whether it's on a computer screen or a piece of paper and make something new out of them and to me that's the romance of it and i'm probably not a good enough writer to live up to that dream (laughs) but i have it and i've experienced it and it's delicious Time for a moment of culture, Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> and some, watch Fantasia. Fantasia is good. <laughs> That's not. Is that your moment of culture? I guess it is. You know, the the I've been so busy with the playoffs. I will say the last movie I think I watched was Malignant, because I I what is kinda, that? It's a horror movie from James Wan, 
who uh, has done um, the series of, of horror movies. I'm, I'm suddenly blanking on it about the couple who who does, um, you know, who investigates ghosts with um, Vera Famiglia and uh, the guy who, who was in Watchmen. I'm not placing it at the moment. Um, but it wasn't good. And what I had heard was, watch this. There's an incredible, you know, eighth inning twist in it. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> not so much. I had to apologize to my wife after for that. Usually she respects my movie picks, especially because I pick a lot of obscure old stuff that's secretly good. And, you know, if you're an aficionado, you know it. But but typically you wouldn't go go watch it. Um, this this one was definitely an, an, I don't know, E. Steve, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so there was no baseball last night, Stephen. No. I watched a movie. What movie did you see? A little movie called Little Murders. And Little Murders, so the Criterion Channel has this whole New York collection movies mm-hmm. about New Yorker in New York. Little Murders, I'd never even heard of this movie, is a 1971 film directed by Alan Arkin. Right. I know who wrote it, but I won't spoil it. And um, it stars Elliot Gould. And so it's an interesting story. So so it, it, it was written by, by, I did not know who this person was. My wife certainly did. And she didn't, it's funny because she saw it on the crest, she didn't think it was the same one, uh, by Jules Pfeiffer. Yes. Um, ostensibly like a, a cartoonist. Yeah, for the voice for forever. For the village voice forever, and so he wrote this this play. It played for like a week on Broadway and was a massive failure, and then it went to London where it was a huge success. Um, and 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 then came back to New York where, and its second go around was a success again and played for like a year. Um. In the first seven day or so failure run, the main character was played on Broadway on the play by Elliot Gould, who also bought the rights to it because he wanted to make a film of it. Um, they originally tried to get uh, John Luke Goddard to direct, hmm. of all people, um, and he responded by saying, "Fuck you! I don't make commercial American films." Um, and Alan Arkin ended up directing it. It is the absolute. As a fan of black comedy, it is the blackest of comedies. <laughs> it is, it is, Kowloon Walled City level dark, <laughs> um, and so it it takes place in ostensibly modern day, being modern day being 1971, but it's like this, it's like this incredibly like nightmarish version of 1971 New York, where, um like graffiti and filth is everywhere, like inside of churches and every, every building you go to. Um, if you like go to the store and come home, like it's not like you're afraid of being mugged. Like literally though, like you're surprised if you're not right. Yes. Like the probability are, if you go out, you're, you're going to be met with physical violence. It's this nightmare. And like the lights go off, there's blackouts. And it's just like, it's like there's blackouts, like being in the Dominican Republic where it's lights go out and everybody just goes, ah, lights are out for a while. You know, cause it's just part of life now. Um, so it takes place in this nightmare vision of, of modern day, 1971 modern day New York. Um, Elliot Gould is someone who, um, due to those things and other things, has just become basically a nihilist um, and ends up meeting a woman who is the opposite, who tries you know, her best to remain positive during all of this. Um, and, and it's about their relationship, um, which you know develops into kind of a love thing um and and every character is over the top her family is in you know it's it's just filled with insanity um arkin himself ends up playing a detective because there are 
there are deaths in this in this movie. He plays a detective who my wife knew this and she nailed it. It's like it's almost like he decided to make an American detective based on um, Peter Sellers' uh, role in Doctor Strangelove as <laughs> Doctor Strangelove, since he plays seventeen <laughs> roles in that movie. But it's like like Peter Sellers Doctor Str- as an American detective, everything is completely top. It is the darkest of comedy. It was kind of wonder. I never even heard of this thing. Um, and it was just so funny and super super dark and mean, and and that's the kind of humor I like. If you go back, if you can get a collection or, or find them online of, of Jules Pfeiffer's cartoons going back to the 60s, they still hold up. Are they, they dark? Like, does he do dark stuff? They can be. I mean, they're they're commentary quite often, but they're they're done as comic strips. They're not like one panel things. And they're they're very smart. Very, very smart. He's still around. He must be like 100. I, and I guess he wrote this play like part of it was like a response to um, in Hinsets is partly being real and partly being a weird a weird psychological effect of, of just the concept even that America like went completely South after the Kennedy assassination. Right. Um, which is a weird way to look at the world. Um, and, and, but it's, it's unexpected. It's really surprising. It's, it's actually very funny, but it's like, it's dark. The, dark. the other thing to, to talk about is that, you know, Elliot Gould is held up as a cautionary tale because he made a movie without much exaggeration about every three minutes in the 1970s. <laughs> like he was really popular and he was really good, but people got burned out on him because it was like, Oh God, what's in the theaters, Elliot Gould. And then in theater two, Elliot Gould and uh, over at the drive-in it's Elliot Gould in three different movies. Now that all these decades have passed, we don't have to deal with that because they're all, discrete things all movies came out at once essentially for us watching at home now and he was great and i I have not seen that particular one but i mean this is an iconic picture but i I feel like there's not a day that goes by that i don't think about his philip marlowe in the altman film the long goodbye both trying to solve the murder of jim bowton of all people Mm -hmm. and feed his cat and uh, just the other day I was just sort of flipping channels on a sleepless night and TCM was showing a 1970 film he was in called Getting Straight in which he plays a Vietnam veteran who kind of goes back to college and is uh, it's not like a fish out of water comedy. It's more straight. And it's him and Candace Bergen and Candace Bergen in 1970. You know, she was a model. She was not only a good actress. She was just one of the most beautiful women on on the planet. And what a compelling thing it was. And it's not a, a terrific movie. By any means, but just to see those two people in it, sort of in their youth and and at the peak of their powers, was a lot of fun. And he did a lot of Altman stuff. He did four, three or four Altman movies, including Mash, like Mash, the year yeah. before this movie. And Donald Sutherland has like a five minute, like absolute, like chew the scenery, own it scene in this movie as a as a preacher who marries the two of them. I love in, in Mash. He and Sutherland are great. And they both thought that Altman didn't know what the hell he was doing and tried to get him fired. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. they Because if you watch an Altman film, and I'm sure you know this, that all the dialogue overlaps. Yeah, constantly. Especially back then, it's just this constant sort of muttering and, and overlapping. It shows up a lot in uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, too. Which also has a, like a horrible sound mix, by the way. Yes. Well, I think that's part of it. And I wonder if, if like, they could. I, I, no, and Altman's very upset about it. No, we watched, we actually, it's funny you brought that. We actually watched that movie, again, on Criterion. Um, a couple months ago, I actually like 
I don't know. I, I, I'd never seen it before. And it's like, I don't know why the sound is so bad. You don't even know what they're saying half the time. But I, I do like this movie a lot. Um, I read about like Altman to this day is still pissed about the sound mix. Well, he's not alive anymore, but where he is, he's still, he, right he now. Made... We're, we're right. So Altman, right now, Altman is in some <laughs> alternate dimension bitching about the sound mix of that movie. He's in the passenger seat of Tommy Lasorda's Prius. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you can't, you need subtitles or something for that movie. Cause it's very, I think they're muttering also. Yeah. So. Right. Because uh, um, Elliot Gould spends that movie talking to himself, or not Elliot Gould? I'm sorry, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty, who's yes. kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, I think we're done here, Steve. All right. I can't thank you enough for joining and always having a good time. Yeah. Um, if you want to email the show, you can do that. Tinmusic at fangraphs dot com, and there are no uncomfortable subjects. That's our lesson for the show. <laughs> there are no uncomfortable subjects. Emails. We'll be back next week with a. a Another co-host in the in the revolving co-host chair. And god damn it, we're gonna have a guest next time. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Um.